want to go to there. Snipe! Saw the window and I just couldn't resist it. doesn't like coffee ice cream. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes, nice. 30 Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's kind of flying, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, play hearts, keep Hello and welcome to the Televerse Sound On Sight TV podcast. This is Kate Kozlik and I'm joined once more by the wonderful Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? Ah, it's feeling it's feeling bittersweet. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, I can't imagine why, though. <laughs> well, not only is this your last episode as co-host of the Televerse, as we, uh, or I should say you announced last week, Simon, also as anyone who is a regular reader of Sound On Sight will have noticed over the past week, Sound On Sight is closing. It's closing down uh, effective at the end of this week. So this is the last episode of the Televerse coming from Sound On Sight. Uh, so yeah, changes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not that sad about the sound on site part because of reasons, <laughs> um, which I'm, I can't say anything about just yet. Uh, but well, I can reassure some of our listeners. If you're curious, if you haven't read, go over, read the post at soundonsite.org. Um, it, but the Televerse will be continuing on. Uh, some of us from sound on site are, are, are branching off and making a new site and the Televerse will have a home there. So I'll be back next Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, no, episode. no. Nothing is ending except for there will be fewer sound waves that contain my voice. Which is a significant thing, certainly for me and for all of our listeners. Um, but yeah, there's a lot There's a lot going on right now. Changes, like you said. Yes, but the Televerse will carry on and uh, other people will attempt to keep up with you and I will be laughing. How excited are you to see like the ridiculous list of upcoming false slates and just know, I don't have to watch all of that? um i mean I, there was really only one or two falls where i tried to keep pace with you on that eventually i just gave up and sort of watched only the stuff i was interested in but i mean looking at some of the i mean i i'm i'm definitely looking forward to never having to think about uh what's the one with the naked tattoo lady again blind spot blind spot i'm perfectly happy to have that as my blind spot in <laughs> perpetuity you can just like enjoy the shows you're actively interested in and not feel like you have to at least cover any new project from someone we liked once. Yeah, no, no, that's, and I'm not going to lie. That is, that is kind of a thing of beauty. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one that is the downside of the platinum age. If you are a crazy completionist like myself, it hasn't quite broken me yet, but clearly 2015 is out to, to is try. Is that what we're calling it? The Platinum Age? I hear that's what uh, John Langreff, uh dubbed it at the FX panel at uh, at, at TCA's. And uh, so I, I don't know if it's caught on. I could just be like late catching up on all my TCA podcasts. And so everybody's moved on from that. But that's I believe can what's you, happening. Can you imagine for a moment if he's wrong and we haven't hit peak TV <laughs> or we aren't about to hit peak TV and it just keeps going up and up until you die? I want to say it was Linda Holmes over at NPR, um, but it was definitely one of the critics 
who I very much appreciate and who is among that uh, Twitter circle of, of criticism, uh, wrote a fantastic article um, about because because there's a lot of talk of, oh, there's too much TV, there's too much TV. And, and you know, the, this uh, realization that there will be I think it was like 400 original scripted series yeah. on American TV. And that's insane. And that's too much. She wrote this piece about how that's ridiculous that just means that there's more good stuff and you don't have to watch it all. And just because it makes our job harder doesn't mean that that is a bad thing. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. Um, some of that might be my inflection in there as well. But um, but that it's only really a bad thing if you try to try, you know, somehow keep up with everything, which we've we've attempted to do to some extent here at the Televerse. Uh, that will become less possible moving forward. But uh, we'll see. I'll give the old college try. I mean, I forget, I forget who said this, but it's it's an odd thing that we're annoyed by the, by the idea that we won't be able to watch everything. No one who covers music is under the impression that they can cover everything. Mm-hmm. The same thing goes with film. The same thing goes with literature. This happens to be the first time in history where it will become potentially, literally, temporally impossible to watch everything without missing the things and ne- then needing a time machine or to watch everything at like 1.3 speed or something. Mm. Um, you know, it's, that's fine. It's fine. Change is good. Change yeah. is natural. Change is a constant. And it's only a bad thing if you try to make it not happen. Uh, definitely agree with that. Well, uh, we're going to have at the end of the, uh, at the end of this week in TV, as we do our show notes, we'll have a little bit more reflection on our four year anniversary as, as a podcasting pair, uh, of course, with your hiatus from last summer in there as well. But, you know, four year anniversary of starting the podcast, uh, roughly here this week in the, po- uh, this week on the Televerse. We'll have some reflection on that, uh, before we go into our special segment this week, of course. As it is an anniversary show, it's the Make You Watchathon, which was Number so much five. fun. Number four, yeah, definitely. Now, now, can we go quickly through all the Make You Watchathons? I made you watch first uh, Doctor Who, and yeah, yes, thankfully not all of Doctor Who. No, a sampling of Doctor Who, and uh, then I want to say, was that the year that you made? Me- oh, thirty for thirty, yes. Uh, I think so. Yeah, again, a selection, a smattering. Quick reflection on that, and uh, I'm still glad I watched 30 for 30. Any thoughts on Doctor Who? I mean, you weren't going to let me get away with not watching it, so... I I was! I would have just, like, given you a hard time forever, and you would have had to deal with that. Yeah, but I would have given you a hard time for not giving me a hard enough time. Yeah, it would have been a whole thing. Uh, Then the next year, I made you watch Number One Ladies Detective Agency, and you made me watch On Death Row. Thanks for that. (laughs) And First Person. That was the best year for for contrast yeah it was it was the, one of those things was not like the other or the other uh but i think those hint i think those hold up yeah i'm still annoyed that we were deprived of Werner herzog's uh series on american hate groups which apparently fell through which, oh. come on <laughs> i'm just thinking of the potential uh, voiceovers from herzog that, that would have given us and they would have oh been my god fabulous <laughs> i can't i just can't and then, of course, last year we were joined by uh, by by interim co-host Sean Coletti for a three-person uh, animation I- installment, which was my pick was um, the Amazing Screw on Head, and we did Frisky Dingo, and we did Samurai Jack. Yes. 
again, all fun shows. Uh, yeah, and I was very happy. I mean, Frisky Dingo was my pick, and I was very happy to revisit it because I I love Adam Reed things. And and uh, and now I think I'm officially. I haven't seen Mockingbird yet, but I think that's the only Brian Fuller thing I haven't seen. Yeah, Mockingbird Lane. Yeah, that's a that's fun, what I meant. Yes, yeah, so that, that's a, that's a fun uh, fun pilot, definitely. Uh, have you seen the Moon one? I have still haven't seen. I haven't seen that one. No, I haven't. Oh, right, I forgot that that recently got a re-release or something. Um, yeah, no, I haven't seen that one. And then this year, to to cap off four years of the Televerse, uh, I made you watch Steven Universe, and you thankfully didn't make me watch the Decalogue. Instead, you made me watch Venture Brothers. So it's another year of animation. Yeah, I, I there were a few like really really perverse selections I could have made and I I decided to be friendly instead. And then, you know, I was pondering should we do The Honeymooner? Should we do Bonanza? Because I felt like there are some of these classics that I still hadn't seen. I wanted to take advantage of the Make You Watch Them to fill in the gap in my uh, cultural knowledge. And instead I filled in the Steven Universe gap which I'm sure is much more helpful in my current cultural knowledge uh, than, than, than uh, maybe Bonanza. Though there was a Bonanza reference on TV this week, that which was pretty fun. When was there a Bonanza reference? I was, I believe it was on. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember. Um, maybe it was. It might have been Hollywood Game Night. I don't. Remember, I just remember being pleasantly chuffed by <laughs> by a Bonanza reference in my from. And, and so I want to say it was like um, David Gentoli on Hollywood Game Night, but I could be wrong on that. Referencing Grimm, uh, but because because I, I want to say I was like, huh, awesome. Way to go, people who aren't, you know, as opposed to writers, just like normal-ish people referencing Bonanza. Uh, but I could be wrong on that. Good use of chuffed. It's a good word. It's a quality word. Uh, anyways, we are rambling here at the start of the podcast. I feel like I may be subconsciously trying to delay the start of our final Televerse podcast together. But that nah. is the coward's way. So let's let's dive in. We've got some fun shows to talk about. Yes. Yeah, yeah there's actually a lot this week, including some new stuff. Yes. Some new stuff and some stuff that's nearing its the end of its run, so it's very fitting. So now we'll take a break and listen to a little Rick and Morty. Thank you, Rick and Morty, for being so reliable with the TV music this season. Uh, and come back with our week in comedy and reality. We'll be right back after this. Oh, yeah. You gotta get swifty. You gotta get swifty in here. It's time to get swifty. Take off your pants and your panties. Shit on the floor. Time to get swifty in here. I'm Mr. Bulldog. Hey, take your pants off. It's swifty time today. This week in comedy and reality, uh, again, I will not be talking about So You Think You Can Dance this week. I, sh- I plan to talk about it uh, at some point in the next few weeks coming up. However, reality is in there because don't think that we're not going to talk about Stephen Amell coming to SummerSlam because that's the thing that's going to happen. Even though I know, Simon, that's not really your thing. Uh, and then I will preview the Carmichael show on NBC and I'll talk about the season two premiere of Survivor's Remorse, a grown-ass man. Then we'll both talk about Blunt Talk, which had its pilot uh, at the Documentary Now pilot as well as the second episode, uh, Drones. Um, then Difficult People, A Soldier's Courage, Playing House, Naughty Pine, Review, Cult, Perfect Body, and Rick and Morty, Get Shrifty. Uh, so first up, uh, Stephen Amell, of course, the lead on Arrow, came on to WWE Raw, I want to say like a month ago, 
uh, as a as a you know the, their celebrity guest basically mm-hmm. and got into it with gold you know, with stardust uh, as as sort of like the continuation of a beef from established earlier this summer and then continued over twitter jumped in the ring like jumped over the ropes into the ring and uh and got into a physical altercation with with Stardust which led to him being part of a tag team match at SummerSlam. Now this is of course there's a long tradition of actors and celebrities getting into uh you know rings or bouts or just uh being involved in the the plot lines and the writing of professional wrestling. Do you have any you know history with this or a familiarity with this? tradition simon uh to my knowledge i've never consciously watched any wrestling in my life really really that is interesting you know what i one of the things i find very interesting is that there is definitely and again it could just easily just be my bubble on twitter but there is definitely uh, definitely a level of respect for professional wrestling and the craft of it and like there's reviews of it at the av club and they're at other uh tv criticism sites as well but also just amongst the some many of the critics that i follow on twitter uh so there was a lot of tweeting about SummerSlam this past week when these some of these different um high profile moments happen for example when john stewart came on earlier and then of course he hosted SummerSlam, and he will be as we record he's on raw right now um explaining his actions at SummerSlam. uh but there's a lot more respect for it as an art form as a narrative reality tv kind of art form which i find very interesting uh and so i'm sort of surprised that you've never seen any i just never got into it man and this kind of the same way i never got into video gaming i feel mm-hmm. like it's a similar thing it's just it it just seemed like I was I was wrapped up in so many other things, and then to get into that thing was just too many things. Too many things. Because uh, I I know so many people, uh, Ricky D being one of them, uh, who are super super into wrestling, have been for a long time, know all about the character mythology, and uh, you know it's just one of those areas of nerdery like like you know extreme board game playing and things like that that I I just never found room for in life. Fair enough. There's a certain era of of wwe wrestling or at the time wwf wrestling we're talking stone cold with the with the the beer truck and rocky the rise of rocky and everything um that i'm very very familiar with from it being a weekly um or bi-weekly occurrence uh or staple of our of our tv when i was in uh, middle school and high school uh, parts of high school uh so so seeing some of this stuff pop up recently has been really interesting for me. And, and I wanted to tune in to, or at least get a blow by blow, you know, gifts and everything of what happened with Amela on SummerSlam. By all accounts, he represented himself. Well, the show, well, I, the, what I saw of it, um, was, seemed like it was very well done because his, his, his physicality is definitely one of the strengths of Arrow. So I was not surprised to see that he did so well at SummerSlam. I thought it was a fun match. Uh, there, you know, you can see there's this one that give him this jump off the double, the top of the ropes, um, slamming into the two guys the, who they're tag team with. They could have done a better job of making it, of hiding that those guys, the reason he's jumping into both of them is so that they will both catch him. Um, so they won't injure his highly expensive face. Um, but, but on the whole, I thought it was fun and certainly, 
uh, a neat way to bring, because of course his tag team partner has a move called the Red Arrow. So to bring Stephen Amell and kind of blur the lines with him and Green Arrow with with uh, his partner Neville, who does the Red Arrow, um, I thought it came together in a really fun way. And did you hear about the John Stewart stuff? Uh, that he was in it. And he that's uh, all I got. He helped uh, decide the the Rollins and C- John Cena match by sneaking into the ring and hitting John Cena, who is, of course, the hero, um, with a chair and then leaving the chair there so Rollins could slam him on it, uh, which is a massive heel turn because with uh, Stewart, John Stewart has been um, in a rivalry, a war of words with Rollins. So to have him come out of nowhere to help Rollins, that's what apparently he's back on Raw tonight as we record to explain. I look forward to seeing what the writers have come up with for that, but certainly it's a lot of fun. And and when you see celebrities uh, like these two who have an appreciation and a respect for wrestling as an art form and as, as a, another method of storytelling and uh, of, you know, entertainment, uh, they can do a really good job. And certainly that is on display here. So I, I thought it was a lot of fun. I kind of love that this is a thing that will apparently continue for a while. Um, and I hope that they continue to make the most out of it. I would love to, to see, you know, if it's going to be executed this well, I look forward to more. I, uh, yeah, I'll probably never, 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 <laughs> never get into it, but I'm glad that other people like things that that's always nice. Think that is always nice. Well, let's move on to the first show of, I guess, next week, which is the Carmichael show on NBC. Now this is a, this was originally going to be paired with Mr. Robinson and aired for six weeks, but then NBC, um, at least the way that they are burning these off, it feels like they went, actually, these are both bad so let's only have them on for three weeks at a time so they did them in in uh, succession rather than together this is uh, a show uh, created by jared carmichael who stars uh, as as himself um and it's like a family kind of sitcom so he's got his girlfriend who's just moved in and he's got meddling parents who are over involved and we meet his brother and his brother's ex-wife and it's just a pretty straightforward uh, family comedy it's uh, similar to mr robinson there's nothing fresh here <laughs> there's a i mean there's like one or two beats that it's like i guess it's fun that there's a show uh, talk, you know, about an African American family that talks about, you know, voting, uh, Republican being a crazy notion. Like, there's, like, at least they're not saying anything new or fresh with that, but I guess at least that's a conversation that this is a show willing to have that the, you know, the, what the the Potterfamilias voted for Bush and is supporting that decision. Um, I don't know that I like the reasons they give him for that and everything, but um, certainly it's not. It's a little bit more interesting than than Mr. Robinson. Not not that I'm going to watch any more of it. They had three episodes available, and I was due to the interwebs abandoning me all weekend. I only had time to watch one of them. I don't think I'll sit down to make time for the others. But I mean, I really enjoy Loretta Devine and David Allen Greer, who play the 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 main character's parents. I, I think the rest of the cast does about as well as they're going to with material this um, familiar and with and a presentation style, again, that has been done so many times. This feels like it's just another show I've seen before and so the fact that it's just another show but with an all-african-american cast i guess for nbc is more meaningful there are so many qualifiers on on your review i don't know if you've been keeping track but like like have i are there any more left that i can use because that's sort of what i feel like 
how I feel about it. Um, I wasn't offended or anything like that. Uh, I wasn't constantly thinking of specific other shows that have done these exact beats <laughs> okay. before, the way so, it was for Mr. Robinson. But, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it's a thing that exists, and I'm not angry about it. Right. So for an NBC sitcom that's being burned off in the summer and is absolutely totally unoriginal, it's passable. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I've spent way too much time on talking about this. Let's move on to Survivor's Remorse, uh, the season two premiere. This is the first episode I've seen of this show. Uh, the episode is called Grown Ass Man. And I actually really had a lot of fun with it. There were some really interesting beats. I don't know that I'm going to make time right now to go back and catch up with the six episode first season. And I believe it's a 10 episode second season at right now but it's certainly because of the strength of this uh season premiere it has gone onto that list of shows that i feel bad for not having seen or that i'm aware that again like we talked about you can't see everything at this point but this is at least one of the shows i know that i should <laughs> see or i should be aware of if i'm gonna be involved in the discussion um and uh, so i would encourage people if you're not sure or if you if you you're, you've been interested in the past for, based on solely this one episode it's an interesting show and i i like the cast and it's definitely you know it's hard not to compare survivor's remorse with ballers because they both center on you know pro sports and the the how that plucking from obscurity to supreme like stardom and wealth affects that person as well as their family and their entourage um or, you know, and then what that can bring, you know, after that star has faded somewhat. So uh, it's this is a much, 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 much better show, at least based on this one episode, than, than Ballers is based on the one episode I saw of that. But, um, yeah, I, I it's interesting. And I'm glad it, it's one of those ones I'm glad it's out there. And I hope I'll have time to catch up with it. It seems weird to me that there's been three, at least three shows off the top of my head that I can think of about sports agents in the last like year and a half it's a it's a popular topic now of course now this is not a show about an agent uh this is a show where the 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 athlete the basketball player is the lead and we follow him and his family uh so and which involves him interacting with the owner and his friend who's his manager and all of that but oh, okay yeah he's he, he at least at the start of the second season he has signed a contract he's with a team uh, that's all established. So it's more about the struggle between uh, professional responsibilities and responsibilities to the sport and the the ability, the performance. And feeling like this, this lack of communication between some of the different people leading to inferred feelings of entitlement or uh, ownership. Of, mm -hmm. of a person. So there's some really interesting ideas going on. I also love there's a scene in a beauty parlor parlor with uh, some of the, the female leads on the show talking about hair and, and uh, beauty and which approach they want to take and definitions of beauty for, you know, with in regards specifically to hair and black hair versus, uh, you know, relaxed hair. And so, you know, I really like seeing that. And I, I, one character gets a haircut and there, there are tears. It leads to tears and having, experienced haircuts traumatizing enough to i don't remember if i actually got tears out of me but bring me close uh mm. uh and i can definitely certainly identify i feel like there are very few men who have had that experience have you had that experience simon uh have i had which experience specifically have the, the traumatizing haircut that leads to uh leads to a highly emotional emotionally distraught person 
Oh, I've definitely witnessed it. I haven't been that person, but I've witnessed it. Yeah. It's such... It's You just can't describe it. It seems like there's no way to describe that to someone who hasn't experienced it, I think. What it feels like, at least. But anyway, so there's some, some really interesting stuff going on in Survivor's Morris. People should make time for it. This is, of course, paired with On Stars. Blunt Talk. I watched the first episode. You've seen the first two. Yeah. Uh, it's not good. This has been getting trashed most places that I saw, at least. I feel like it's better than that, but I think it was very helped for me by the fact that it had been so trashed. So when I watched the the pilot, I was like, this is fine. <laughs> it's not good. It's really not good. But, I mean, like, it's not the, horrible. The thing about it, though, is reimagine the same show with anyone except Patrick Stewart in the lead. You wouldn't and make this show. It's a disaster. Have, if you didn't have Patrick Stewart in the lead. No. Um, but the thing is, it would be. It's a show that people have made. This, uh, you know, this is a show we've seen before, like, dozens of times. How many shows has have there been about neurotic newscasters or, like, news personalities or TV personalities in general? Uh, especially always men and especially almost always alcoholics. Uh, among, I mean, obviously he has other vices as well on the show. Uh, ultimately, as much as I love Patrick Stewart... His, his casting, it, it feels like glorified stunt casting. Uh, you know, he, I was reading an interview where he was talking about the fact, oh, this is the first time I've gotten to do post-coital scenes or cocaine scenes or like a list of things that he's never gotten to do. And that's fun to a certain degree, but I feel like the novelty kind of wears off after about 15 minutes. And then you realize, wait, I'm not laughing and there's absolutely nothing new going on. Yeah, and that's one of those things with... um. With Patrick Stewart, he's such a talented actor. He can be very funny. Uh, and it's nice to see him get to do something different. And clearly he's relishing. He's, he's rel having a fucking blast. Yeah. But it just makes you wish that the material was better. Because you know that he could do even more with it. When, when he's on top of the car and he's quoting uh, Shakespeare. And he's got this fabulous delivery. And it's like... This guy is capable of so much, and then you can't come up with something more creative for him to do than to just, like, snort, uh, snort coke and pass out. I mean, come on. It's Patrick Stewart. I did enjoy the Brent Spiner cameo, though, of course, I must say. Uh, yeah, and there's, I mean, and Jackie Weaver is in here, too, and, man, she was so amazing in Animal Kingdom, and has gotten almost entirely terrible roles since Animal Kingdom, and I feel bad. And she's not; she doesn't get a good role here, and it's really, it's really a shame. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, th I feel like so much of the the root of the problem is the fact that yes, this is a new show co-created by Jonathan Ames of of Bored to Death, which we which I mostly liked, uh, but it's also executive produced by Seth MacFarlane, and I feel more MacFarlane than Ames here. Yeah, I don't know that I know Ames' voice well enough to make that assertion because the only thing I know of his is uh, bored to death. And that feels so defined by the actors in its central roles. I, it's hard for me to imagine anybody, but Schwartzman playing that lead on bored to death. So mm -hmm. I, I associate that tone more with him than with Ames. Um, incorrectly. I know that that's not what I should, but that's, I, I have trouble separating those two. Uh, so I can't really speak to how much of this is Ames's voice, but certainly I wish it was better than it was, than it is. Um, and I will not be making time to watch a 
Patrick Stewart comedy, 90s Kate is very disappointed in me. I mean, I'm way more disappointed in the show than in you. <laughs> I mean, just the, the just the whole idea. Just if you were to read like a one, like a one line description and the cast, you'd be like, "Oh wow, like this is some, this is something I need to check out." And I did need to check it out, and I did, and it wasn't good, and that's not a good feeling. No, but you know what was good? The first two episodes, or at least the pilot, I should say, of documentary. Now, I wasn't very big on the second episode. This is a new comedy from IFC starring Bill Hader and Fred Armisen. That is, it seems like each episode will be a parody of a different style of documentary film. And uh, there's a book ending or a, a introduction, at least in the first two episodes, by Helen Mirren to the specific film that we're seeing clips of or footage from. Uh, and the first episode is very much uh, themed around Grey Gardens, and the second episode, I take it this is a Vice parody? Have you never seen any Vice I've documentaries? I've never seen any Vice, no. Um, the, th- the thing about Vice documentaries is that they actually can take on like interesting subject matter and worthwhile subject matter, and sometimes even in an interesting way, but their style and their voice is so overbearing that this is, in fact, the second elaborate parody of a vice style documentary to come out this year the other one which was uh punchier and i assume there'll be a lot more of it um coming probably better than than this is uh the onion has actually started an entire video channel called edge tv uh, and that's pretty much all they're going to do from here on out is spoof vice because it's just so rich a vein for mockery uh that being said i i agree that the that the uh the first episode which is not only well I almost don't want to spoil it, but it's a yes, it's very clearly a Grey Gardens parody, but then it veers somewhere else that uh, I didn't necessarily see coming, and I was so glad that it, that it did, because it worked so much better as more than just a pat sort of homage slash parody, which would have been fine, but that made it better. Oh, so much better. And like you said, I don't, I'm going to steer clear of any of that, just because I, you know, it kind of lulls you, the, the first episode, into a false sense of security. Uh, oh, okay, I understand what this is, and they're doing a good job with it. It's fun to watch. I mean, uh, I was particularly impressed with Hater in the first episode. He gets a lot more to do. He's far more central to the do- documentary within the show than the Armstrong character is there. And I, so so he gets more opportunity to shine, but I think he really definitely takes makes the most of that opportunity in the first episode. Um, and, and so then when things shift a little bit, you get to, you know, really enjoy that. And uh, it's it, that's the kind of thing it would be difficult to do more than once. I don't know if they're going to try to, but I felt in a big way the, the lack of that level of creativity or uh, the, the, it doesn't need to be a twist, but the first episode for when I was watching, it seemed like it was a one joke episode, but a well-executed one, an interesting one, you know, yay, it's fun. Uh, the second, ep- and th- but then there's, then there's, you re- realize there's a lot more going on. Um, there's other things that you could rewatch it again and have fun with it, and it would, you know, hold up to a yeah. second viewing. The second episode, it is that same joke all the way through, and I was tired of that joke, f- not even five minutes in. Yeah, I mean, I think which is why I think the short form parody of that works so well on the, on the onions thing. But uh, I mean, in both cases, the the actual style elements and the 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 aping of it is uh, uh, so on point, um, and it really needs to be appreciated. We haven't even mentioned the fact that this is hosted by Helen Mirren, by the way, who <laughs> I assume shot her stuff in like three hours on on an off day, but it's still pretty cool. Um, the thing that really shocked me about that first episode and the show in general and how funny it can be 
is that it's written by Seth Meyers, who I have to say, as a as a TV personality, might be the most comprehensively, stupefyingly, dumbfoundingly unfunny human ever to grace a TV screen. He's never made me laugh, never made me crack a smile ever, and I've seen him a lot on television. Don't understand the appeal. However, seems to be pretty good at writing stuff when he's not on camera. Don't know how that works, but still, props where they're due. Okay, that's a little harsh for me, but I haven't been watching any of his stuff uh, on TV that, that he's performing in since Weekend Update, um, so I can't speak to his recent work, but um, that is pretty harsh. I will leave that to our listeners to comment. Hey, man, it's my last episode. I don't have to hold any punches. That is true. That is very true. Well, uh, will you be watching more of this moving forward? Um, I think it's going to depend on what, because each, each episode is obviously going to tackle a different subgenre or well i mean in the case of great garden specific one specific documentary but it seems like they're going to be doing it at least a different subgenre style every episode if not a single film i think it's going to depend on what the genre is i think it, that's going to affect their success rate wildly but uh i mean the, the, one of the things about peak tv or the platinum age or whatever it is is that we're going to get more hyper specific programming and this is pretty damn specific, and yeah. I'm into it. Yeah, it's fun to watch them get to do this, and uh, IFC feels like a, a good home for that as well. So it seems like they're in good, safe hands. Uh, well, speaking of other homes for comedy, let's move on to Difficult People, A Soldier's Courage. Uh, how does <laughs> Ohulu? Uh, this is, I'm still really enjoying the show, and it's it's making Hulu more of a destination for me, which I'm not not enough to watch any of their other original programming, but um, I've, it, I'm certainly warming to that that idea with difficult people, which I'm sure makes Hulu very happy. Uh, How do you feel about this episode? Uh, I think it's only gathering steam, and uh, <laughs> there were some specific jokes in comedies this week that really reinforced how uh, how specialized these shows are getting. One of them was the fact that there's a looking punchline. In this episode, which I couldn't enjoy because I haven't seen any Fraggle Rock. <laughs> well, I, I was so like disappointed. The, I feel like you could get the basic idea, but just the just the like random invective being spewed in the direction of looking a totally innocuous show that nobody watched just really warmed the cockles of my heart. I'm not even sure if the people who make Looking watch who make uh, who made the show watched Looking, um, but it still it was it was nice for it to be mentioned. Um, anyway, and there was it, also pretty weird, frankly, to get to get so much getting on uh, mentions. But anyway, uh, yeah, I, I really I, I enjoyed this episode a lot. I really liked all the stuff with uh, with Billy and his family. And again, I think they're they're really finding a nice little sweet spot between just a, a, a teensy hint of softening their characters with great with a with a huge great dollop of very r-rated language and sentiments <laughs> yeah it was it was definitely fun um and i really i hadn't seen last week uh when we were recording i caught up with that one as well and had a lot of fun with that one too um so yeah i'm like i said i'm really like you said it's only getting more confident and it started out pretty darn confident so that that is a nice thing to see but watching them watching them get these sort of moments of triumph and then had them all stripped away by the end of each episode so far hasn't gotten old in may eventually but for right now i'm i'm good with the wash rinse repeat uh 
at least so much as we have gotten it. Uh, nice to see Maria Thayer pop up here. We always love seeing her. Um, and there are some other fun fun faces. Uh, but yeah, good good stuff from, from Difficult People. And I'll definitely be continuing. Will you be continuing with Difficult People after yeah, you are not required to for the podcast? Probably. Hey, now that I'm not going to be on the podcast, I can let stuff pile up. Nice. Which I couldn't before. That's going to be a thing. That is going to be a thing. Well, let's talk about uh, playing House Naughty Pine, because we have been allowing that to stack up at least somewhat. They've been releasing episodes on demand um, a week before they air, and we've been going with the air date episodes. So last week when we were recording, we started to talk about this episode before we realized it hadn't actually aired yet. I was very confused, because I hadn't seen it yet, and you had. Uh, right. Because this is one of the few more dramatic, plot-centric big episodes just because it features what appears to be the uh dissolution of uh i'm gonna say Martina's marriage uh i will probably call her bird bones the rest of the time uh, how, <laughs> how did this episode work for you and uh you know it's been sort of been felt sort of inevitable that this was coming did did it uh how was the execution i mean i'm not sure that i recall having i think seen every episode of playing house i'm not sure i recall a marriage so sort of offhandedly dissolved like they just kind of decide at the end of the episode this isn't working well i guess this is over mm. like oh wow they're just they're gonna go straight there which is fine i just can't think of another sitcom that's done that in like in such a short period of time yeah especially when they've you know made real efforts in the last couple episodes to build up the the relationship with tina uh, you know, this episode is all girlfriends time, you know, Lindsay Sloan, this is the best I've seen her in anything. I think she fits so well into the, the sensibilities of this show and she's so much fun as Tina. So I very much hope that she's not gone from the universe of the show. Um, but yeah, I kind of loved the anticlimax of, of the way that they call it quits, um, because I've never been married, but I've had some uh, friends over the years who have gotten divorced and some of them have been horrible and some of them have been completely amicable and divorce can be as easy as you want it to be. Mm -hmm. It can be uh, an emotional, but you know, it's the right thing to do. Everybody knows it's the right thing to do and you sign the papers and you do your best to, to move on. Like, in an afternoon if you want it to be. So to see that kind of an approach is just like you say, it's incredibly rare. Uh, feels more right for this show to allow them to not get bogged down in series long spite if they don't want to. Um, but yeah, I kind of appreciate that because it's been sort of a running gag that, oh, Tina and Mark's marriage is terrible and they, you know, uh, they shouldn't really be married based on, you know, their interactions. It seems like there's something inherently wrong at the center of this relationship. But on a show like Married with Children, uh, for example, and the neighbors seem to hate each other but are still married <laughs> for the entire run of the show, usually that just is a gag at the center of a, of a non-central relationship's um, core that just remains, air quotes, funny throughout the series rather than actually being realistically examined. So I yeah. like that they went that other way. Yeah. I don't know any divorced people yet. I will. <laughs> That's ominous. I definitely will. It's it's just math, people. It's going to happen. But, um, uh, 
But uh, you know, when I when I was watching this episode, I couldn't help but think of um, the fake sitcom on the Louis episode "Oh Louis," when um, when Louis feels the need to you know go off script and have a moment where where his TV where his too hot TV wife says, "I don't love you anymore," and it's just a deal breaker for them. But on this show, it's okay. We can actually have that happen. That's a nice bit of evolution for the forum, wouldn't you say? Definitely. Uh, do you have any other thoughts about this episode? Uh, any thoughts on Rob Riggle or you know these other these other uh, elements? Did you like the birdhouses? Uh, I wasn't really thinking about any of that too much. I will say that one day, one day, Rob Riggle will get to do something other than the Rob Riggle thing, and it'll be good. I, he's good at it. It's it's still mostly usually funny, but still. I'd like to see him branch out a little at one point. <laughs> branch out, birdhouse. Anyway. <laughs> nice. When you say that, uh, one of these days Jack McBrayer will get to play something other than Kenneth the Page. Uh, and that'll be nice, too. Yeah. <laughs> but he's very good at that. Yeah, if anything, that's even more. Yeah. <laughs> more more, more set in stone there. But, uh, it's, yeah, it's been a fun season. It's interesting, and I look forward to seeing how long they take before they start getting... Uh, you know, moving towards the eventual coupledom of a certain fan favorite couple. But but for now, let's move on to review uh, Cult and Perfect Body. How disturbing is Creepy Orange uh, Forest to you? There's a lot that's disturbing about this episode. One of my favorite things that I'm, I was so glad they had the smarts to not underline is the way that in the early part of the episode, uh, Forrest's sec- secretary who hates him promises that this will end with rivers of blood. Hmm. <laughs> And then it does, <laughs> almost <laughs> literally. Uh, this was the other episode, obviously, that I was thinking of when I told people, when I told y'all this was going to get real, <laughs> and it was going to escalate, and they were not going for broke. They were totally going for broke this season. Uh, yeah, this is what I had in mind. Uh, if anything, this maybe took it a little too far, but I'm okay with that somehow. Yeah, so I had so much fun with this episode, specifically with Lennon Parnum, with Lennon Parham who, you know, when she comes back and she's level six, ah, oh, so much fun. Uh, she's she's fantastic all the time. I always enjoy her, but I particularly like seeing her progression from seemingly normal, what is it, high school teacher? Yes. <laughs> through to cult leader uh, and crazy person. Uh, that, yeah, that's a that's an arc. That's, you know that's what? one we get to watch. I was really impressed with the fact that a par- review apparently had their budget slashed to ribbons, and yet they still found a way to blow up for- Forrest's dad's other house <laughs> in spectacular, seemingly non-CG fashion. Although, if it, if it was CG, it was good CG. It was either practical effects or very good CG, because uh, yeah, and, and just even the way that it shot the uh, yeah from further back, so you it's like no, you're seeing the entire house as yeah, this explodes definitely. and the actors in frame. Uh, it felt like practical effects, certainly. Um, yeah, that's that's fine. I mean, like I assumed his relationship with his father was irreparably damaged earlier, uh, and so then to have it go to. Uh, what what we get here and he's you know the dad still seems concerned for him and this is gonna be like model airplane club or whatever uh was surprising but sweet uh i don't know that he can go further well i kind of i kind of like the idea that and we'll see where it goes from here on out but i like the idea that Forrest has inherited stubbornness from his father and his you know his dad sort of seems to be kind of along for the ride in the same way that that Forrest doesn't ever give up on the show. Um, 
I mean, he, obviously he's he's quite upset when his when his houses are destroyed, but he, but he never seems to disown Forrest, which is sort of a neat touch. Yeah, it's, I guess it's, it's it's a nice little like it warms the heart. It's as close as the show gets to heartwarming. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, yeah. Uh, any other thoughts on on this episode? Any thoughts on the perfect body? Oh my god. Uh, well, I mean, the obvious highlight of that to me was uh, was Grant. Uh-huh. And, and his his various reactions to just the 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 initial reaction to oh god just seeing it and then getting control of the situation saying well you know that's fine but we said perfect <laughs> <laughs> James Urbaniak has I mean he's killing it all over the place he's killing it right now definitely yeah oh man that's the the teeth the teeth are what did it for me so mm-hmm. that was an early adjustment and that was pretty fantastic. Um, but yeah, really looking forward to the rest of the season of review. Our last show this week in comedy is Rick and Morty and Get Shifty. And this probably was a little bit lower on the scale of this season of Rick and Morty for me, but I still had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that. Um, the, this, this episode had the other hyper-specific joke that made me realize how specialized TV is getting, wherein um, I believe it's uh, it's Rick who is listing off famous musicians they should try to get to oh no it's it's actually it's the president um voiced by keith david love that um, which another guy just killing all over the place and uh who lists off famous musicians until he gets to the dream aka the writer of umbrella who i know exactly who that is uh and 0.005 percent of the audience knows who he is real name terrius um anyway so it just like seriously, the cross section of people who watch Rick and Morty and people who know who the hyphen dream is has to be like seriously twenty eight people. I enjoyed that not even as on that level. I enjoyed that so much as a you know everything this person has written, but you don't know their name. You don't care enough about these songs that you love to find out who actually wrote them. <laughs> yes. Uh, mind you, there's other things about the dream that you will not like once you investigate who he is. But anyway, still a very hyper-specific joke that I very much enjoyed on about on par with the looking one. Uh, yeah, but other than that, I agree it was not as uh, quite as good as the other, was it four episodes? It was on a real hot streak there. This one was just okay, I thought. Um, I think it was hurt by uh, the relative weakness of the family subplot. Well, I mean, I like the family subplot. Um and I, it was nice to, again, to have them change things up and not just have summer always with Rick and Morty this season. And and I thought it, it worked in the, the way that they turn it, you know, surprise you at the end by saying we want it to still be our daughter shows a commitment to character and you know, that, that I think really does help ground the show when they have all this other stuff going on. Um, keeps you a little bit more invested in them as people, therefore allowing the writers to exploit that and our knowing understanding of those characters for comedy. So it, it felt like a little bit of like uh, balancing the scales there. Um, and it was, I thought it, I thought it worked, but yeah, not as laugh out loud, funny or as, as creative or memorable. Yeah. I mean, uh, th- there were things that definitely should have been funny, like the whole ice tea subplot that went into it, into a very bizarre dimension, literally, but it was just kind of there. 
Yeah. Many of these are jokes we've seen before. And that's the trouble with the, with the, with the subplot, with, with the cult, uh, and even with the main plot. Um, we haven't seen this flavor of it, but we've seen this kind of joke before. So that was, I think, what, what separated this one from the rest of the season. But that being said, it was still a strong episode. Is it in contention at all for you with best week uh, for your winner for this week in comedy and reality? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think I will have to give it to... I'll give it to review with a nod to difficult people. And I will give it to review with a nod to the first episode of Documentary Now. If if it was just the first episode, I probably would have given, given it to Documentary Now. But the second episode really did bring down the average for me. So that's where I would put it this week. Um, now we'll take a break and come back with our week in genre and drama. in genre and drama simon's going to talk about fear of the walking dead which has pilot then we'll talk about masters of sex monkey business uh hannibal the number of the beast is 666 mr robot mirroring and then show me a hero parts three and four so uh we should also mention up here at the top that narcos is going to be released by netflix this friday we don't have screeners but keep your ears open for that we'll be talking or i Man, I'm not used to that. I will be talking about it next week on the podcast. Um, but I, I started Fear the Walking Dead, the the pilot. I ran out of time, um, which is a thing that happens every now and again. I have not seen more than the first, I want to say, 15 minutes. How is this pilot? Were you riveted by the first 15 minutes? I thought it was a lot more solid than most of what I saw people complaining about. I thought it was fine. Uh, and again, it may have benefited from... All not seeing all 63 minutes well, yes also. but but i was seeing tweets five minutes in uh, or 10 minutes into this episode uh when it was going when it was airing about how oh i already want all everyone to die especially those whiny kids they don't feel particularly bad or whiny or you know i thought this the opening was fine i didn't think you know there was any problem and it's the first 15 minutes though they may become insufferable later later on but i thought that the opening was fine and i thought that the kids were not worse than anybody else i've seen i i heard them compared to i think it was Seppenwell said they were the worst kids since smash since leo on smash and it's like dude dude don't, yeah, I wouldn't don't go, drop the L card <laughs> You're like that. I wouldn't go that far. Um, I don't think that the individual characters are really the problem, uh, for me at least. Uh, although definitely Junkie Sun is kind of annoying. Um, I don't understand why he's only wearing like a half-size shirt when he goes running. I don't really get it. But anyway, um, 
the problem for me with this show is that I don't understand why it exists. Like I do on on a monetary level. Uh, I don't understand why it needs to exist on a creative level. I don't really understand how it's expanding our um our our understanding of the universe of the walking dead i don't understand what is particularly compelling about these characters stories or this family's story that absolutely begs to be told begs to be brought to life um so that's my overall philosophical issue there are some very specific script problems this did not feel like it needed to be 63 minutes long. There are redundant scenes all over the place, redundant plotting all over the place. Uh, in particular, this notion of uh, once the son gets out from the church and he describes uh, to various characters, oh, it, it was a mess in there. It was so, it was bloody and awful. And then Kim Dickens' response of, it's a drug den. Bad things happen there, which is already eye rolling. But then later in the episode, um, when a second character goes in to investigate, uh, and really quite clearly sees how bad it is, and then doesn't really bother trying to trying to explain it to other people for a while. Just uh, that whole thing was ridiculous, and it actually began to make me resent the Kim Dickens character, which is a real problem, because she is the only real draw to this show for me. So, yeah. I can definitely... I didn't, I didn't hate it with, like, the vitriol of some... Of some. Many if not nearly all people on Twitter, which was really fun. I got to say, way more fun than watching the show. Uh, but I will not be carrying on with it unless I hear that it's like remarkably, that it gets remarkably, remarkably better. And I have to say, other people pointed this out, and this is definitely true. The the contrast between this and The Walking Dead's pilot, as much as The Walking Dead ended up getting many things wrong, it nailed piloting. Uh, and this didn't feel like it did, which is not very encouraging. Yeah, I have some I have some thoughts on on this, but I will not share them until I've watched the whole pilot. Yeah, uh, good idea. Because that's what you do when you're not a hack. I'm sure there are many things I do that are hacky, but I'm not going to express a public opinion on why th- some some things work and other things don't until I've seen the entire uh, pilot. So, uh, all right, I have thoughts. To be continued uh, with my guests next week on the podcast. But for now, thank you for that analysis. I It will certainly certainly inform uh, my eventual viewing of the whole pilot. But um, glad to hear I'm not like crazy for thinking that they were just regular annoying kids <laughs> and not super yeah. mega annoying. But uh, anyways, let's move on to Masters of Sex, Monkey Business. Um, and let's just... I would be happy just talking about, hey, isn't it nice to have Sarah Silverman back and to get some Betty time? Because I really liked that part of the episode. <laughs> uh, I mean, th- I guess the Sarah Silverman scenes were fine. I'd, I'd completely forgotten she'd ever been on this show because Betty's been so sidelined. Um, that being said, we can't get away from talking about this episode without talking about the fact there is an extended sequence in which Michael Sheen and Lizzie Kaplan... Talk, or, or have a, have a long conversation involving and in the presence of a man in a gorilla suit who very shortly afterwards uh, expresses a very clear intent to grope Lizzie Kaplan um, and then almost does. And the whole scene takes up about five minutes of this episode. Uh, seriously? Really? We're doing this? Was it a gorilla the whole time? Because I, I wasn't... I thought... 
it wasn't the whole time. Uh, okay, if it wasn't the whole time, it was definitely that entire time that it had an arm stretched out in the oh. general direction of Lizzie Kaplan's chest area. Yeah, you know, but I can see not wanting to have, have their actor that close to an actual gorilla, even okay. a very well-trained one. If it had been a real gorilla, it would not be a better scene. Okay. I'm, I'm pointing out it adds an extra layer of absurdity to the sequence, but the fact that this is something that Masters of Zex feel that feels the need to spend time on, like a lot of time, man, <laughs> I don't, I don't really. What is going on over there? I also, um, the thing, the issue I had with it, because uh, I thought there were some interesting elements to that storyline here and there. I like, um, <laughs> I like. Bill's son burning his baseball cards that or football cards, I should say. Uh, th- that was fun. So there are other things in this episode I liked, but um, I thought it was very odd that Ginny had a problem exposing her breasts to an animal. That she would care about that felt very odd to me. Uh, really? Yeah. I mean, she's already expressed the fact that she views them as basically human. I guess. Um, but she's, because she's the one who sparked the, the, the taking on of Gil as a client and who keyed into Gil's, uh, focus on her and her ability to draw his attention and everything like that. Uh, and again, because it's a, I guess, I guess I, if they had done a better job of showing, her being more on board and then it seems like it gets out of hand and goes too far in that scene i it would have felt more natural i guess to me but because it seems like she's all on board and then she doesn't want to be there at all because the the story the episode beats require bill to feel the need to piss all over her leg in front of josh charles which then makes her not want to do the gorilla casing like i just felt the writer's hand too much in that uh and, and I, I feel like her turn, her turn and lack from being very interested in this topic to not interested at all felt very writerly and not organic to the character, I guess. Um, I mean, I can't believe we've already talked about this scene so long. I really just wanted to shame it and keep going. But um, I think to me that what just, what made the scene so creepy was the blocking, uh, not just of guy in a gorilla suits, gorilla arm um, versus uh, Lizzie Kaplan, but also, Michael Sheen, like, sort of, like, skulking in the hallway so that he won't be seen like a weird gorilla pimp. Yeah. Um, it just it did, just did not work for me on any sort of serious dramatic level. It just seemed like such a misfire. Fair enough, overall. yeah. I don't disagree um, about that part of it. Um, remember when Masters of Sex was one of the most interesting shows on television? <laughs> Yeah, I well, and I feel like it's it it threatened that for like moments earlier this season. Yeah, and people who were down on last season, I would remind you, Julianne Nicholson and all of the fantastic stuff we got with her character last season. Yeah, yeah, and I'd say the Josh Charles character is not really panning out either. <laughs> Another, I, I actually, I'm beginning to wonder if he was the guy in the gorilla suit, considering he's wearing one later for some reason. <laughs> uh, he's trying to be sweet. Uh, I like how the show has made sure to not mention his wife uh, for quite a while. These last couple uh, episodes, 
or at least do it so glancingly that I could miss it. But um, I'd forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is. It's not like this is it's not like Masters of Sex has become a bad show. It just is no longer a show that is essential, feels essential to me in really any way. And that is disappointing because for a while there, it certainly was. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And it's weird because it still has these great constituent parts and mm -hmm. everyone's given her. It's just it's mostly just the scripts that aren't there. Yeah. Um, well, uh, let's move on to our next show. And that is Hannibal. The number of the beast is six, six, six. As we record, my review is not yet up uh, at at Sound on Site uh, because, you know, when you don't have Internet all weekend, it makes it hard to do internet related things like stream episodes of television uh and review them uh but hopefully by the time you guys are hearing this there's something up um and certainly before the next episode airs in canada my whole re review will be up over <laughs> the next episode yes the final episode on nbc this is the <laughs> penultimate episode certainly um what did you think of the number of the beast is 666 <sighs> i know everyone loved this episode so i'm gonna keep it short um I didn't really enjoy it. Uh, I think, I mean, I was impressed by it in terms of its execution. I'm always impressed with the execution of Hannibal. Uh, it had some of the, if not the most disturbing imagery of the show, definitely very much up there. Um, that being said, I didn't particularly enjoy the episode, mostly because it was depressing to me to, to finally get the extended torture sequence that it feels like the show has sort of always managed to avoid somehow. Um, and then we finally get one with, um, with Chilton and the red dragon. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it, like it, it was exquisitely performed and shot and all the usual technical superlatives for sure. Um, and that long shot of, uh, of dollar hide just sort of perched behind, uh, over top of, um, uh, of Chilton was was very impressive, uh, but it felt like it felt like the show capitulating in some way um, that I didn't find particularly uh, refreshing. Uh, I mean, yes, obviously they've they did some they did some uh, gender flipping from the original material that to made total sense for things that Brian Fuller has said, and I appreciated that. But um, yeah, it's. The the show descending to this level of unpleasantness at the same time that it has um that it that it basically has made Will into an well I mean, Will's obviously done some really fucked up shit uh but this is another level and it t very much undermines our slash at least my ability to empathize with him in the way that he has empathized with so many uh and that's a problem for me especially considering there's real there's only one episode left guys. There's only one episode left. Stop listening to Brian Fuller. There's one episode left. Um, yeah, this is not a great place for me to feel about the show um, this close to the end. As much as, again, I can I can appreciate it. Uh, also, was very disappointed to hear Will uh, to, to hear uh, Will Graham asking, "Is Hannibal in love with me?" Again, way prefer this as subtext as as opposed to text. Well, and again, for me that issue, I, I also that's a big question mark in my notes for this episode. Um if he was going to ask that question, that's a question for season 2 will. This yeah. is not a question for post the sitting in front of the the primavera uh will. 
this is not a question for Hannibal turned himself in because he's obsessed with me, Will. This is not three, had three years to think about it, Will. That's something that if he was going to, if he was not going to be sure about that or going to have to ask, that's something that should have happened back in season two. Yeah. Also, can I just say Will has the worst taste in therapists? Well, but who's he? I thought about that. But who's he going to go talk to? Who's not just going to be like, y'all crazy. Yeah, like that's kind of what he needs to hear, though, is the thing. Like, what is he gaining by going to Bedelia? I think he's got to process some of this stuff and, like, talk it out, even just, like, to to go through this talk through this stuff out loud. And he doesn't trust Jack um, to not have motives. And he knows Bedelia has motives, but he also knows she's very curious and detached. Uh, so he, you know, feels more at ease with her. Um, it really, again, it just... Because I, I was pondering that exact thing. I was like, why would he ever go to Bedelia to talk about this stuff? Why would he trust her enough to do that? There's like, but who's he going to talk to? I feel like he's he's better off even going to Alana. I don't know that he would, though. Yeah, I mean, this is... I don't want to get too much into this. I just... I, as soon as he was talking to Bedelia, I was like, come on, dude. Like, <laughs> is this really helpful? Really? Uh, but anyway, I don't know. I, I have... There's just... There's so much that they would need to do to sort of get back in my, like, 100% good Hannibal graces, and so much still left to be done with this plotline um, that I, 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 I foresee very mixed feelings about the finale, but I kind of feel like that was going to happen anyway. Uh, I really appreciated um, Libby Hill's um, write-up at the, at the New York Times, because she's doing that there now, or has been for a while. Um, cause she was one of the only people who also has had some reservations about this whole arc that it was nice to see that reflected. And while we're at it, congratulations to, to friend of the show, Libby Hill on her new job for the LA times. Very <laughs> exciting. Oh uh, yeah. If I could make air horn sounds well, I'd be making air horn sounds. Yes. That, that was very exciting to hear this, this past week, but, um, yeah. Oh, sorry. As long as I'm shouting things out on the internet related to Hannibal also, um, I actually, I think, enjoyed the Hannibal YouTube recaps <laughs> of Hannibal more and like watching all of those more than I actually enjoyed watching Hannibal this week. Now, I definitely like this episode a lot more than you did. Um, and this is all stuff that will be in the uh, the latest episode of This Is Our Design now that I can record it because I have Internet again. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to go into that here because I go into it there. But Definitely, there are a couple little things like that. Of, the, of those things that you mentioned, a, a few of them did uh, raise some flags for me as well. Uh, I, I will mention here, though, that I love that Chilton even survived that. <laughs> Survives having his face bitten off, Hannibal eating, <laughs> part of which Hannibal ate, uh, as well as being lit on fire. Um because if, if Frederick Chilton is anything on this series, it's he's a survivor. So somehow he is still alive. Yeah, I still I feel like even having him survive all that was just another level of sadism that I was uncomfortable with. But I can see the opposite being true for some people. Fair enough. Well, let's move on now to our next penultimate episode, which is the penultimate episode of the season of Mr. Robot Mirroring. Uh, how disappointed were you to find... Uh, to finally have the show 
very metatextually reference uh, the fact that Mr. Robot is indeed entirely in Elliot's head and that he is that character. Who boy. Uh, I have so, I have many feelings about Mr. Robot. I'm trying to write a column about my thoughts on this season leading up to the finale. Um, I've, I'm like 1200 words in and I feel like I haven't scraped the surface. Um, there is so much about the show that I find so interesting and other things that I find so maddening. I think it's clear to me, um, based on, I, I think it's safe for me to say that I think the middle section of episodes four to six were the strongest. And I think the show where the show showed the most promise um, and I feel like it's sort of retreated from some of those uh, more interesting avenues uh, at this point and sort of towards where we sort of figured we were it was going from the very beginning and then seemed like it, it was too clever to to do that. And it turns out that not only is it was it going to do those things, it was going to be angry at us uh, or rather it was going to have Elliot be angry at us for having figured it out so long ago, <laughs> um, which uh, <laughs> the show is, is re like, obviously this is a show that's interested in having its cake and eating it too. And also showing you the ingredient list and then scrambling it and trying to make you put it together, even though you basically know how it's made. This is such a weird show. Um, and I mean this in a half admiring and half frustrated way. Um, yeah. I mean, for what it's worth, for them doing this twist, if you can call it a twist, I feel like this this episode is almost the show acknowledging that it's not even a twist because it's so it's so done to death. Um, for for them doing it, I thought it was pretty well executed. You know how I think it would be way better executed if there's no Christian Slater next season. Mm hmm. Yeah. Or that's something I could definitely see happening where he pops up like at the end of season two or something. Uh, you know, or something happens that's traumatizing, um, and uh, Elliot backslides, um, stops taking his meds or something. Uh, I could definitely see that happening. I would be very surprised if Christian Slater was in next episode, next week's episode, you know, finale, barring a mental break from Elliot. Um, I and I would also be very surprised if he was in season two. <laughs> I I feel like nothing would surprise me about what the show can do at this point. Uh, I mean, there were there were parts of the episode that I thought were very graceful. I, I I think the the initial scene of of young Elliot and um his dad and Mr. Robot. I don't I don't remember his dad's real name if or if that's even shown up. Um, but uh, I, I you know the early scene as much as it did take me out of the show to have Christian Slater mention Pulp Fiction because it was just like too much nineties. Um, but uh, the whole time lapse of seeing what 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 had, what had become of that space was nice. Um individual scenes were fine uh but yeah i i have i have so many mr robot related feelings also there was an interesting piece um i forget where it was um about uh how about racial sort of erasure and uh actors of color playing essentially white characters yeah. and uh mr robot came up with that rami malik is of, is of egyptian descent but you know clearly his dad was white yeah, i guess we haven't seen his mom we haven't seen his mom that's true uh, but from what we've seen, it seems to be an example of of uh, of of uh, racial erasure. The more obvious example um, brought up in the article was uh, Priyanka Chopra on Quantico playing Alex Parrish. <laughs> but anyway, um, the um, 
that's that's sort of a dimension I hadn't I hadn't really thought about. Um, I don't know. I, I thought this was a pretty well executed ver- version of a thing I was hoping the show wouldn't do. That being said, I still can't decide if the show using a piano version of "Where Is My Mind" at the end is brilliant or insulting or both. No, I, I didn't even notice that because uh, of how how I was watching it and when. Um... I was worried I was going to run out of time to catch up. So I wanted to make this. I made sure I watched this episode before I watched Fear the Walking Dead uh, for that reason. But um, so I was thinking, I think my, by the end of the episode, my, my thoughts, uh, some of my thoughts were on what I would be able to fit in next and not on the music selections like they should have been. But uh, so I cannot comment on that. I will say, like you I will co-sign part of what you were saying where I think this executed uh, an idea that we were all pretty much keyed into um, and we maybe were not looking forward to in about as, as good a way as I could have expected or hoped for uh, while maintaining that air quotes twist, like you say. Uh, I liked the beginning of the episode a lot, actually. I really liked that they just commit to it and they don't... I like that they didn't try to stretch that out longer um, and have you wonder, oh, is it his, you know, his uncle and this and that? And, or a you know, stepfather, they, like I was saying, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I like that they go, nope, here's him, the same age, and in the 90s. You know, that that, that was nice. I, I have to say, I am really glad that he's dead uh, and not, like, alive, but was hiding away and there's a conspiracy. Yeah. Um, because if he's not dead, that just would have complicated so many other things so mm-hmm. unnecessarily. I mean... The show has already complicated a lot of things unnecessarily. Like I'm, I'm gonna try to rewatch a couple early episodes before I finish my my column, and see how they hold up. Or like, because the whole thing of him being, of him getting seduced into F Society, even though he started F Society, um, that's pretty damn loopy. Even mm-hmm. for even for this sort of twist, I'll be curious to see how. I I mean it's it's not that loopy, uh, but it's definitely. It's kind of dopey to me, uh, but you know that's that's the nature of how we deal, or, or at least how I deal with the sort of twist. Uh, I seemed pretty straightforward to me, especially because we saw him as his father uh, in that scene. Was it last week? So when his father is leading him into F Society, he's already been there and doing all that for this whole time, just not as Elliot, but as his father. Right. I suppose. See, this is why I need to rewatch things. Um, but yeah, uh, I think as uh, I don't know, I, I feel as though we got a glimpse of a show that was less insular and sort of more interested in its ensemble in the middle part of the show. And that was sort of the one I was more interested in. I think that's also, frankly, where we're headed next season. At least I hope it is. And mm-hmm. uh, that's that's the show that I'm I'm I think could be truly special. Especially we get more scenes of built family or constructed family bonding, sisterly bonding <laughs> uh, between our two fem- female leads because it's been really nice to see them together and to get see them get more to do than solely interact with Elliot, uh, definitely. Um, though, however, we should move on. And so our last show of the week is Show Me a Hero, parts three and four. Uh, what did you what did you think? Because you, you were more on the fence with this than many uh, of our fellow critics. How are you with these two episodes? I'm still kind of on the fence, to be honest. Uh, I feel pretty much the same about these two episodes as I did about the first two. I still think the Catherine Keener subplot is frankly kind of awful. Um, and actually, if anything, I feel worse about it than I did before because just the, this whole arc of of 
she's opposed to stuff and then she and then she meets some black people and now she's maybe starting to be okay with it um and just some of the rhetoric some of the some of the writing for that character has just seemed so flat and two-dimensional to me i felt sorry for for keener frankly uh throughout this miniseries so that's been a real weak point for me um i will say that i everyone needs to find uh there is a on youtube you can watch a full episode of the morton downey jr show uh i don't really know anything about morton downey jr he seems like an asshole however um, it was a, uh, a, a, a seemingly a political talk forum show uh, from the 80s, and you can watch uh, the real Michael Sussman, uh, the the NC uh, the, the NAACP lawyer played by Joe Bernthal, uh, and um, ah, what's the name of Alfred Molina's character? Um, uh, Spallone. The real Spallone is there as well. You see a just how much Bernthal nailed that character. Uh, Spallone will get there, uh, but the the level of mania in that uh in that episode where where people where real people are discussing this case is beyond even what's on this show it's absolute it's a must see clip for anyone who's been enjoying this show so do do look for that yeah i i got to say i was having more of an issue with uh with Bernthal's performance in the first two there are a couple moments that felt pretty mannered uh but i really liked him in these two episodes and uh and some of that may have just been the way that that character was presenting himself or like these, um, you know, if he'd put up some walls because he was having to deal with, you know, really fight a fight that he shouldn't have to because he'd already won, you know, in the first episode mm-hmm. specifically. But uh, I, I he, the way he relaxes into the role in these, uh, certainly by episode three and four, if not by episode two, uh, it's been a lot of fun to watch. When they're playing foosball, for example, it's just great. It's mm-hmm. wonderful to get to see him play such a different character because I feel like his character on, was it uh, Mob City, felt very, again, very stylized and very drawn from early bits of Shane on Walking Dead. So it was nice to see him play such a different character and uh, certainly uh, has me much more excited to see what he does next, um, or at least the next thing of his that I see. I'm sure he's been doing lots of things. but Yeah, uh, well, he was, if in my opinion, possibly the single best thing about The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, he was so great in that. Uh, beyond that, I mean, I kind of feel the same. I have the same misgivings and the same things that I like about these two as I had about the first two. Uh, still too much Springsteen way too way too many montages i don't really i didn't really get the point of uh getting a second uh, i guess flash forward to um to wasisco in the graveyard with the pager and the vomiting uh got it the first time i don't really know why we needed a second one but you know that's that's kind of a haggis move and uh yeah still still i'm not feeling as though the characterization in the non-wasisco parts of the show is all that great uh, I'm more on board with um, the uh, the keener stuff than you are, if only because I feel like that storyline is not as... Because I was seeing last week her start to question the motives of the people that she has been working with. Um, you know, I like that they... You know, it, it's, again, it's a very simplistic arc of this person thinks that this issue is not about race... And then eventually, it seems like, starts to realize, oh, she's surrounded herself with a bunch of people who would, uh, you know, write go KKK on walls and stuff. Um, So that feels, yes, very um, convenient, I guess. 
But I'm, I'm, I just, I guess I'm more hopeful that that will lead to something interesting in the next episode. I also, I really like that they, the way that they jump forward in time. I wasn't anticipating that. So to have us just like skip months and months of this, I, th- I, I thought was, was very, uh, very much appreciated. And I'm looking forward. I, I'm, I'm just in general liking this more than you are. Uh, I like the way that they're starting to bring some of these other threads together more. Um, I'm understanding. I feel like an idiot for not immediately getting that these other characters we were following would end up in the housing. And that's why we were yes. following them. I'm an idiot. Uh, so, so seeing some of that come together is, was nice for me as well. Yeah. Well, and I think that, um, I think the, there's a, there's a cross purpose in the scripting where we're supposed, I'm supposed to, uh, you know, think about them as, as people and they are supposed to feel like, you know, you know, three dimensional, uh, three dimensional entities as opposed to, um, you know, being cogs in a potential cogs in a system or as points to be made or demographics to be represented. And I never really feel like they quite cross over. Uh, in in quite the way that they would in a proper series, as opposed to in this rel- relatively compressed format. That being said, this still feels to me like, um, you know, sometimes you'll watch a movie and think, wow, this would be really great as a miniseries. Um, this feels like, y- y- like, a, like a pretty good movie that got expanded to a miniseries, but maybe didn't, shouldn't have been, or like should have been expanded to a slightly shorter one. I still haven't shaken that idea yet. Um, and again, maybe it's just the didacticism uh, creeping up, but I'm, I am enjoying it. I think it's it's passably entertaining, but uh, from my expectations for a David Simon joint, uh, not quite there. Fair enough. And uh, yeah, fair enough. Agree to disagree on some of it. And I see where you're coming from, even if you're a bit more. Uh, even if I'm wrong, we can no, say even, wrong. No, but that's the thing. I would say wrong if I meant wrong. You know me. Uh, but uh, even if I don't, I see where you're coming from, even if it doesn't bother me as much as, as certain of these elements uh, are bothering you or frustrating you. Um, so, yeah, I look, I'm looking forward to the, to the end of, of, that, of this miniseries um, next week. But what wins your week in genre and drama? It's Fear the Walking Dead, isn't it? It's totally going to be Fear the Walking Dead. <laughs> um, wow, this was not a great week for these. Um, there was no Rectify, man. I can't give the Rectify prize. And I wasn't crazy about Hannibal. Um, but I think I will still give it to Hannibal because just for, I mean, obviously it was still amazing on all sorts of levels, even if I'm not particularly getting much entertainment value out of it lately. <laughs> well, the Hannibal award goes to Hannibal for me. Uh, I liked pretty much all of these episodes more than you did, <laughs> which is fun for me, I guess. But, um, yeah, the Hannibal award goes to Hannibal. I liked it a lot more than you did. And I am looking forward to, and not looking, why would you throw a magazine you can kill people with paper and Hannibal definitely can kill people with paper ah anyways looking forward to the finale <laughs> of Hannibal next week yes uh, the series finale of Hannibal on NBC yes don't let anyone so, tell you different so now a few show notes you can find a post up for this episode at soundonsite.org this week uh you can email Email us the t- at the Televerse at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and, and like the page to see what's going on with the Televerse as well as to start up a conversation there. You can uh, rate us or review us on iTunes. We'd very much appreciate it. It does help other people find the show. And, of course, you can reach out on Twitter, uh, at least for me right now. Simon will be disappearing from Twitter. But uh, you can reach out to me at the Televerse. And rather than 
uh, a question of the week. We're going to just have to take a few moments, not too long. We don't want to get too maudlin here, but take a few moments to say thank you for listening to our, to our listeners. But Simon, thank you for four years of, of podcasting. It's How many hours was it? You did some math. <laughs> well, I actually did a lot of math. I was thinking about my whole podcasting career between Sound on Sight and the Televerse and... Uh, and also the prep time for all of those. Which oh God! The prep time, the actual just recording the time. year of year end. You know, ones by themselves are like a week of my life. Yeah. So um, thousands of hours, thousands and thousands of hours I've spent podcasting. But specifically, you and I, uh, I believe we came up with, uh, let's say two. Let's about two hundred episodes minus like that includes accounting for the ones that I wasn't there for. Uh, average of about a hundred hour a hundred minutes 105 minutes each um plus all the other shows that we did single podcasts for um i think it's very safe to say that you and i have recorded more tv podcasting together than any tv podcasting team out there take that ryan and ryan boom (laughs) take that firewall and iceberg boom take that other people Draft. Well, you know, just and Todd and Libby just ended their podcast, so they're you know, they're 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 not even going to overtake us. Boosh. You know? So there's that. Uh, no, uh, it, uh, wonderful critics all enjoy all. Not all fans of the, uh, friends of the show. Many of them, however, friends of the show. Uh, but certainly, it's been an adventure these past four years, and I've discovered a lot of TV I wouldn't have discovered, and had a wonderful time. Uh, talking about it with you, Simon. Now, if you had to pick some of our most memorable discussions, remember when we, you know, watched True Blood every week and reviewed it? Because that's the thing that happened on this podcast. <laughs> I have so little memory of those conversations, but I'm sure they were very entertaining. Uh, How about our spotlights of shame for Touch? Oh. And the magical autism. Oh, man. Or uh, Downton Abbey back in season two before it was cool to hate on Downton I Abbey. Just, I just feel like we should have done more of those. Uh. I feel. I think we probably would have honestly if I kept up with with all the fall pilots, but I just didn't. Uh, I probably would have prodded you into doing more of them because they were always so much fun. Um, I was sort of hoping that we would get another one that was spotlight. What was the last one we did? It was still a while ago. I feel like we 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 revived it um, last year for something. For and I don't something. remember what it was. Our listeners will have to fill us in yeah. on that. But I was feel like we it, did oh, like four or, or, or five of them. Oh, dude, it must have been Stalker. Yeah. Oh, yes. I'm sure it was Stalker. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds like us. Yep. That sounds like us. Yeah, those those were all fun. Sometimes hating is fun. I don't care what anyone says. Um, and uh, I have to say, in terms of uh, shelving, there's so much, especially classic comedy, that I would have never, ever taken the time to watch, particularly British comedy like Blackadder, Faulty Towers. Stuff that I just can't see myself ever going out of my way to have watched and yet had a total blast doing. Um, yeah, those really stand out to me. I would not have discovered Slinging Arrows. Certainly one of the f- favorite shows that I've discovered um, through the DVD shelf. Uh, there's so many that I would not have, have... Even if I felt like I knew them or if I felt like I understood their place in television history, I mean... I would not have made the time to sit down and watch Mary Tyler Moore show, which 
I absolutely adore. It's one of my favorite shows of all time now, and I would not have made the time for it. Um, there's so many. There's so many that called to mind. Do you have a favorite show? Or I should make it a little hard that because Rectify did just finish up last week. It's very fresh in our minds. Do you have uh, like a handful of shows that you say are the the best shows of your time on the Televerse? I mean, I think like, that... like premiered after. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I... Breaking Bad is out. Uh, Breaking Bad is out. Um, Mad Men is out. <sighs> Mad Men is out. Is Louie out? Had Louie already not started? I feel like that was almost sure. directly concurrent. Um, yeah, it was right about there, yeah. Yeah. Either way, I mean, the middle season, uh, whatever, middle seasons. Who knows how many seasons it's going to have? But, like, seasons two, three of Louie were just incredible. Um, I would say. Um, Terriers was in there and I that was such a blast and mm-hmm. even still going back and looking at its ratings makes me sad and also laugh. Um what else? Uh we covered almost the entire run of Justified. Mm-hmm. Almost. I think we started at season 2 or season yeah. 3. Um uh I think I started writing about it at season 3, I think. You started watching it before I had seen it. You'd certainly seen season two i started um because i you were warning me off of margo martindale's emmy acceptance speech uh when you know so i hadn't seen season two at that point um but definitely from season three we were covering week to week on the podcast what was her emmy acceptance speech she mentioned the fate of her character oh (laughs) and i was like oh dude that was clear from the first episode of the season but um it was a whole thing yes i remember that now um god what else um party down i think Mm -hmm. uh we probably was probably roughly concurrent with the start of the show did you ever end up watching season two yeah we did i did a dvd shelf with sean oh that's right uh, friend of the show vicar murphy yeah right good i'm glad because it was so great (laughs) um i still miss that show sometimes uh god um what else the americans we was still going but still that's i i consider that very much uh in our personal wheelhouse uh, if apparently not some certain other dumb critics, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. There's been a lot of great stuff. There's been a lot of, there's been some hilariously awful stuff. Uh, mm. Again, like I'm, I a lot of stuff that I I'm sure I would not have made time for, and and has has greatly uh, embiggened the value of life, if I may put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even even just your cajoling me into watching Adventure Time, uh, certainly, is I would not have made time for it if you didn't make me watch it. So thank you for that, Simon. Um, but now, uh, on the topic of Adventure Time, we should probably, we've already been going, this is going to be an epically long episode, but for your send-off, I feel like that is A-OK. And it's my podcast now, so I can do whatever the hell I want. Exactly. Which is how it works. Uh, so, so now, however, we have been going on for quite a long time. It's probably time to send it to our, uh, Make You Watch-a-thon. So, on the topic of Adventure Time, we will be talking this, for this final segment together as, on the Televerse, about, the Venture Brothers and Steven Universe, two fantastic, very different animated series. So we will now take a break and be back with our Make You Watchathon number four. Gary, what's with all the noise down there? Mom, I'm podcasting the story of the Venture Brothers. Gary, nobody cares about the Venture Brothers. People care. Well, just be quiet. All right, fine. People really need to know this stuff. <clears throat> all right, here we go. 
The story of the Venture Brothers, which really is not about the Venture Brothers, it's more about Doc. You see, Doc Venture used to be one of those kid adventurers on a TV show, and it totally messed him up. Now, Doc Venture's dad, Jonas Venture, was like this badass, super cool scientist guy that was head of Team Venture. And that was the action man, who's a super soldier dude, uh, Colonel Gentleman, who's a sexually liberated gentleman spy, and Kano, who's huge, and he's Asian. And he's a mute. Oh, and there was this fish guy from Atlantis, but you never hear about him because he was wicked lame. Okay, so these dudes raise Rusty. And Rusty is Doc's little kid name because nobody names a little kid Doc. Alright, the kid from The Shining was named Doc, but that's totally not common. Okay, anyway, they raise him without a mom and stuff and around supervillains and dangerous science. And they drag him on adventures and whatever. It totally messes him up. So then Jonas dies, and Rusty grows up and inherits all of Jonas's adventuring stuff. And then Doc himself has kids. Now, I heard he hooked up with his bodyguard, Myra. But she's totally crazy, and I don't think that's true. Anyway, the kids are Hank and Dean. Hank and Dean are the Venture Brothers. Get it? And they're dragged around by their father, too. That's the vicious circle. People do this. Okay, so Doc's a super scientist himself now, and he's totally crappy at it. But he's got all these villains chasing him and stuff, so he has to get a bodyguard for him and the boys. This is Brock Samson. He's a full-on god. Men write him love letters and women name their vibrators after him. So Brock protects the Ventures from the bad guys who are all a part of the Guild of Calamitous Intent. Now they keep villainy on the up and up, and it's run by the Council of Thirteen and the Sovereign, who may or may not be David Bowie, the rock star guy. That David Bowie. Anyways, he's mostly floating head, so it doesn't matter. Now, Dr. Venture's main pain in the nuts is the monarch. He's my boss. He totally hates Dr. Venture. Nobody knows why. It's like in his blood or something. So the monarch is now married to his old second in command. That's Dr. Girlfriend. She's now Dr. Mrs. the Monarch or something, but nobody calls her that. She is smoking hot, but has like this really tragic voice. She sounds like a dude, but you get used to it though. Alright, the monarch has a whole bunch of henchmen, and they all get numbers, so when one of them gets killed, it is no big deal. But it is, because that happened to my best friend, Henchman 24. Now that's me, I'm Henchman 21. And you're on the rise You can count on the four of us Taking you down Cause we're good and evil never beats us We'll win the fight and then go out for pizzas We are the crystal gems We'll always save the day And if you think we can We'll always find a way That's why the people of this world Protect your earth, and we will protect your earth, and 
back with the televerse this is kate calls joined once more by the fabulous simon howell and this week rather than the dvd shelf of course it is our fourth anniversary podcast so every year i make simon watch something he makes me watch something uh of course last year fabulous interim co-host sean also made us watch things but this year it's again for once more just the two of us and we did another animation round this year Yes, we did. Um, I I just I hope we all had a good time. And I and remember that when I since this was an animation round, I could have made you watch Neon Genesis Evangelion. And if you ever watch it, you'll thank me that I didn't. Well, do you want to let the listeners in to what the original plan was for your pick, Simon? Right. Uh, well, originally I had picked uh, Christoph Kieslowski's The Decalogue, which is, uh, from what I remember, I haven't I didn't get a chance to rewatch it in full. An incredible uh, Polish series, which was aired um, in various places on American television based on the Ten Commandments. But um, I, I watched a couple of them and I remembered how intensely depressing it could be. And I decided that it would not it would just be way too much whiplash to go with your pick. So I ended up uh, reprogramming and choosing the Venture Brothers instead, which is a, a series that we covered the fifth season of. Uh, but I knew that you hadn't seen, you'd seen very little of the back episodes, so I figured, hey, why not? Yeah, and it was it was a lot of fun to catch up with the Venture Brothers. Of course, uh, we've already hinted at it, we've already mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but my pick was Steven Universe. We'll get there. Uh, but we'll start with the Venture Brothers, which was your pick. And like you said, we covered season five um, on the podcast week to week when it was airing. We covered the, the Christmas special, right? It was a Christmas special um, that they did after that, and I really enjoyed season five. When it was airing, I know you're a big fan of the series. I've got plenty of other people in my life who are big fans of the Venture Brothers as well. Um, and I, I made a mistake when I was when I was planning <laughs> for this segment, which the mistake was that uh, I forgot that there were half hour shows. I thought for some reason I misremembered that they were like 15 minute minute shows that occasionally had like. A two-parter, you know, like it was twice oh, as long. Yeah. So then when I started watching episodes, I went, oh, no, oh, no, I don't have enough time. <laughs> so. <laughs> Remember when I sent you a carefully curated list of Venture Brothers episodes, which you could have stuck to, but no. I had, to, had to watch, watch it all. Because that's how I roll. And if we're going to, we're going to, you know, Viking ship this, we're going to do it right. We're going to send you out in a blaze of glory. I'm going to watch all the Venture Brothers. That's right. It. That's how they make you watch the fun works. So I started watching it. I had seen already seen all season five. I knew I loved that. I had seen the beginning of season one, tried to marathon it one day when I was sick, you know, several years ago and uh, struggled. I'll struggled. I'll put that. It was not my cup of tea. So I started in the middle of season one because that way I knew I would overlap and I would have seen all of it. Uh, watched all of season two, went, oh, no, I'm, I'm running out of time. Watched the season three finale and all of season four, and then pushed back our recording so I could watch all of season three. Uh, <laughs> that is not the best way to do it. Watching, you know, 
half of season one, all of season two, and all of season four in under a 24-hour period is not the best way to watch Adventure Brothers. Right, Kalsik. Of all your ludicrous marathons, that is probably... I don't know if it's number one, but it's pretty close. It's pretty close. I'm not going to lie. I felt like uh, on the, the last episode of The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, when they cut to the people who watch all of Fox News and, and uh, the various and different... And their eyes are bleeding? That's sort of how I felt. Because um, I was like trying to like do invoicing and dishes and other things. I had many responsibilities this weekend outside of uh, Sound of Sight and the Televerse uh, that I needed to accomplish as well. So I was trying to do some of this while also really carefully watching Venture Brothers. It nearly, nearly killed me. Um, and, and, and I feel like I should explain that like Watching that much of any show is a problem, mm-hmm. like, uh, it, within a 24-hour period. Watching a show is bombastic and dense, and, um, I mean, the la- I, I know which episode you watched last. Uh, the mythology of this show is both insanely complex, and also you frequently realize completely unimportant for the most part. Uh, and that combination, I would just imagine to be quite maddening over that shorter period of time. Well, here's what I thought was interesting. I learned a couple things about, you know, by watching it in this way. First of all, I learned it's a terrible idea unless you love the show <laughs> from season one, like from the earliest episodes. Don't do that, gentle listeners. Um, but it, it really highlighted to me some of the things that I, I really enjoy about the show and some of the things that are I find very challenging. And it also highlighted for me the way the show has changed um, tonally in its approach to storytelling and characters from its early seasons to its later seasons. Because, of course, it's had five seasons, but those have been stretched out over more years. Um, like 12 years we're talking about here. Th- yeah, it's very, it's definitely shifted in their storytelling approach. Um, I don't, you know, yes, the, the, the universe is dense, but I also... Um, We've watched a lot of TV on this podcast, Um, so I feel like for compared to some of the other shows we've watched, compared to something like Adventure Time, this mythology is nothing. It's like there's yes, there's a lot of it, yes, but it's not like you are supposed to remember one princess you've seen in an episode and then they come back three seasons later. so I felt the mythology felt very manageable, and especially because I was watching it since such a condensed time period. It was like, oh, yeah, that was that guy from like four hours ago. Not a big deal. So that helped. Right. That certainly helped. Um, what I the, the flavor of Venture Brothers that I most enjoy is the self-aware and more and, and warmer variety, which will surprise none of our listeners. <laughs> um, but w- when we get into the later seasons, there's more uh, self-awareness. There's there's more uh, humor between the characters, and when they when they try to make these B characters, which is not something many of the early episodes are particularly concerned with, but you know, in season five we got that arc with Dean where he's going through some stuff. Um, we, there are various points. There are different characters who get a little bit more depth or shading. Um, and I find that flavor of the show much more palatable, especially in marathon form, personally. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I was thinking of it because we had a brief uh, talk on Twitter about stuff that you were finding hard about the show. And the comparison that I would make, since we're going to sort of head this off at the past a little bit, is to Archer, um, which I think is a show that is heavily influenced by this one, if I had to guess. Um, another sh- Another animated series that takes on 
um, that both pastiches uh, some very obvious genre t- touchstones, and uh, but also sort of goes and does its own thing, and also has sort of a tortured relationship with character sometimes, I think. Um, and I think that uh, the overall arc of the Venture Brothers has been towards uh, showing more affection towards its characters and its universe. Uh, I think the, and I, it's been pointed out elsewhere, you know, the, the early, especially the first season is very heavy on reference and sometimes not a whole lot else. And I think that over time that, you know, the first, I mean, first of all, the animation just gets way better after that first season and, um, you know, everything gets more elaborate, more characters get thrown in. Uh, but somehow at the same time, the, the emotional depth sort of climbs, um, and, I think that like something that you, that you had t- trouble with, which is the coarseness, um, you know, in particular, like I'm there, like, there's definitely, uh, there's, there's definitely like a, a lot of, there's a lot of unsavory language and sentiment being thrown around at the same time, uh, to, to again, go back to Archer, which frequently throws around gay jokes and fat jokes. I think what makes it okay, uh, for the most part, at least to me, is that it makes sense when it happens for those characters to be slinging those around each other. But I never get the sense that the people that, uh, that, uh, Doc Hammer and Jackson public who do, uh, like they do almost everything on the show, including a, a good portion of the voices, all the editing, all the directing, all the writing, except for one episode, which maybe we'll get to three episodes. Uh, really? Ben Edlin I... has apparently wrote for, you know, one episode in season one and two, or two episodes in season two, or at least co-wrote. Okay, I think that I think he's the only. I think uh, he only gets sole credit for one episode, though. Okay, uh, which is uh, "Viva uh, Viva los Muertos," which is one of the best episodes. Uh, but anyway, um, to me, it, it makes sense for the characters to be uh, to be mean and sort of toxic to each other in that way. But I feel love for the characters uh, coming from the show itself, but but more so over time, I would say. Yeah. If that makes any sense. No, it does. That's the big difference for me on a show like Archer. And this is something I really, well, before we, I want to dive into this. You know me. I want to deep dive into this. Yeah, let's do it. But before we do, really quickly, what's your preferred flavor of Venture Brothers? Because, like, for example, my brother, one of my brothers, uh, really loves the early seasons of the show and is less interested in the more, uh, you know, touchy-feely, typical, <laughs> you know, uh, warm-hearted comedy of the the warmer-hearted comedy of the the more recent seasons. Where where do you fall? I mean, the show never really gets that warm. Is the thing like we're talking about it as though it, it as though there's like the Venture Brothers equivalent of a very special episode. There haven't been any. Um, I think that the later's like starting from even mid season two, but definitely uh, definitely season four. I think is where it really hits a great stride. Um, I think that it's it's doing a better job of balancing, um, and apparently, like I have never paid attention to this, but apparently, like uh, one of the two creators tend tend to do more mythology heavy episodes, and the other one tends to do more character based episodes. But I never paid enough attention to the individual credits to know wh- who did which. But I think uh, over the last couple seasons, they've really done an incredible job of uh, of servicing not only the main the Venture Brothers, but also um, you know, characters like, uh, like Al and Quizboy, um, and, uh, and 21 and the Monarch and, you know, all sorts of side characters all get more depth. And to me, the more that happens, the more that enhances every aspect of the show. 
because otherwise you're you know you're 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 watching you know a a, a pretty silly very elaborate crude cartoon about a million competing factions like the guild and the OSI and the revenge society and the triad and etc cetera, etc cetera, and you just have no idea why fair enough no i'm I, we're on pretty much the same page then um and that's where to go back to our earlier uh topic now for those who don't follow us on twitter which you why don't you follow why, us on, why would... on twitter we're very friendly we're very we're very t- chatty over there on twitter when the topic uh strikes us um the the if I had to nail down one frustration that made it challenging to watch this as a marathon, it was certain repeated phrases and uh, terminology and also just an approach to to marginalized groups. I guess I'll put it that way. So okay. there's, I, there's a lot of um, – there's a comfort with calling things retarded – and calling people retards. Uh, there's there's a comfort uh, with, you know, there's a, almost every single character on the show is very comfortable saying, that's totally gay. And not in a way that's supposed to be funny or a joke, just that's as like a point of fact, as a throwaway, you know, and, and at times it feels like, oh, this is the show pointing out that a character is, is being uh, immature. Uh, but most of the time, it's just sort of, oh, isn't it funny? They're playing into heteronormative stereotyping. And when you have a show like, and as, as I was watching this, why is this frustrating me? Why is this bothering me? These are not people that are supposed to be good people. They're, you know, they're all some level, besides, I would say, Dean and Hank, they're all some level of despicable. Um, so it's not. Or, I would say more damaged than despicable for the most part. Yes, but they're they're not supposed to be in the right. Why is this bothering me? When, for example, the people over on Always Sunny are saying terrible things all the time, and it never does. And the difference for me is that whenever we get, and you mentioned Archer as well, whenever we get, um, people saying, you know, using things that we words that we are not comfortable with, or at least I am not comfortable with. Uh, terminology that I'm not comfortable with uh, that is offensive um, and that is uh, has been used as hate speech um, or 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 to shame people or to to really make them feel small on a show like Always Sunny. It feels like it comes out of character. It doesn't feel like this is a just a normal bit. This is it doesn't feel like it's the show saying it. It feels like it's a character saying it. Whereas on Venture Brothers, because there is not th- that specification between the characters because for so long they don't feel like individual characters so much as uh very you know punchline deliverers maybe is the Mm -hmm. right way to phrase it uh it's it just it's this notion that the show agrees with this or this it's putting this forward as um they expect the audience to agree and that they're you know that the character is right for lack of better word and i'm not saying Mm -hmm. that i think the show uh is homophobic or is intentionally putting out this anti-gay agenda or anything like that. But it's very, it feels like a product of, it just feels very dated and to a point where it makes me uncomfortable. And if, again, it's one of those things where if I was laughing and having, you know, really engrossed in what was going on, then that, those kind of lines would, you know, put me off, but then I would be able to re-engage with the show. But watching so much of it back to back, especially in the right. earlier, less character-based seasons, uh, where so phrases like that just keep coming up over and over and over again, it really felt like it was a product 
of an mm-hmm. of an earlier like it's one of the things where you watch some early '90s stuff and you're just like, "Ooh, that does not age well." Well, and some of it was a product of quite a while ago. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it 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 may it's not as far back as the early '90s, but you are talking about the early 2000s for the first couple of seasons. Um, I think there's a couple reasons for what you're talking about. First of all, unlike Archer, where um, you have a very distinct and recognizable voice cast, um, you, I mean, obviously you have Patrick Warburton as Brock Sampson, but that's it uh, for the rest for the for most of the rest of the characters. And we're talking like dozens and dozens and dozens of characters. You're mostly dealing with three or four voice actors. And I think that probably, especially when when there's not as much character work going on, that can make the show feel uh, more. Uh, more homogenous than perhaps it's supposed to be. I didn't have a trouble distinguishing the voices of the, like they really, the characters, the voice performances felt distinct to me. The way that they were written did not. Okay. Did, and did you find that these, cause I wasn't like, I, I wasn't using my, my scanning brain to pick out trouble words. Did you find that they were, they were popping up more in the early seasons than the later ones? Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot more in season one and two. Somewhat, yeah, I figured. Somewhat in season four, somewhat in season three. I didn't remember hardly anything like that in season five, which is part of why it really stood out to me um, right. when I started, went back from, you know, my last memories of the show being so fond um, and being season five. I went back to the earlier seasons and all of a sudden I'm like, wait, what is, what's going on? <laughs> Where This is not my Venture Brothers. <laughs> well, and I, and I think what's interesting also about you having this trouble is that if you really break down what's going on with the characters over time, the Venture Brothers is really one of the more uh, open-minded shows about what its characters can get up to without judging them. Um, and... <laughs> Now, okay, I'm probably I mean, this is going to be. Are we going to talk stretch. about Sergeant Hatred, the character that they is a villain who's a pedophile that they turned into a hero for a while? Uh, I mean, who even still is yeah. now, and 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 bravely battles against his pedophilic urges with the help of the drug no molestol. Um, I mean, there's that. I was also thinking about, um, and it really didn't occur to me until I did some rewatching, but the whole story of Hunter, uh, who is um who at first is brock Sampson's uh superior and then goes undercover and has to get a sex change operation just and apparent and apparently only does it for you know for the operation we find out later right right we find out later but then once it's undone he he discovers that he actually did enjoy being a woman yeah it's tough because there are some earlier mentions before he undergoes a sex change operation that imply that maybe this is a transgender character and then he undergoes a sex change operation and it's uh the animation for him gives him boobs and he starts wearing bikinis and that's it still has a beard uh everything else about him is exactly the same uh, to the point where it felt very um that was another thing i was having trouble with because it just feels very the joke is oh look isn't it so funny it's a man only he has boobs and and he thinks he's a she and then it's revealed that he's not actually transgender, but this has been a, and so it's, that felt sort of like a rewrite to make it better. But then they, you know, so it, that was a trickier thing for me where it felt like when they go back and say, oh no, he isn't actually transgender. It's not like right. this is who he has always been. It's he's, he's so committed to OSI. But I, I, I so something that I kind of like also is the way that, um, 
it's like the characters in the show's conceptions of gender is 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 quite odd like there's the occasional remark about uh dr mrs the monarch or dr girlfriend whoever you'd like to call her uh, at any given point of the show there's definitely the occasional crack about her quote-unquote six-pack-a-day voice Mm -hmm. but for the most part like nobody really like nobody ever questions her gender Mm -hmm. or anything uh she's just she just sounds like that and even when uh, when Hunter is embedded with, uh, I forget what they're called, the Wild, the Blackhearts, um, again, like no one really, no one really questions. Yeah, which, which is just one of those interesting threads that I have, I haven't really formed any thoughts about that. Uh, but it's it's what I'm trying to explain is that there is whatever the difficulties of uh, of depiction are, there is a lot going on. There's a lot of diversity in the Venture Brothers universe. And it's not always like the most eloquent at dealing with it, but there, I mean, there's, there's a lot going on. Yeah. um, You said there's a lot of diversity. Uh, There, there isn't in some ways. There is and there isn't. I mean, because there are almost no women on the show in any sort of a recurring manner other than Triana. And thank goodness for Triana, because I was having a really hard time with Molotov cocktails and the way that basically all the women on the show were portrayed which is thankfully countered by Triana being a normal person. Oh, and and the the episode where that is most centric on Triana, where she speaks to the master, who is of course H. John Benjamin, is one of my favorite episodes. Um, and the the whole vision of her potential future with Dean. Oh. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, you, you've also got, I mean, obviously Doctor Girlfriend. Um, although it may not seem like that sometime, given the voice casting. No, but uh, she's she's secondary to the monarch i always enjoy when she gets you know episodes where she's featured a lot i, I do i do enjoy that character a lot and yeah. she certainly helps i mean on one hand it's definitely true that there aren't it you feel the absence of, of female characters i think part of that is by design because at, at least within the venture clan because the absence of a, of a mother is is an issue mm-hmm. for the boys well it's also it's a parody of johnny quest and there aren't women on Johnny right, Quest. Right, also that. Um, well, and, and I'd like to get into the idea of parody, actually, because I've, I've never watched Johnny Quest. I don't really know anything about it. Everything, In fact, everything I know about Johnny Quest, I learned from the Venture Brothers. <laughs> but uh, I would say it's not, It's not. I mean, it's. it may, it may have started off as a parody of, of Johnny Quest, but now it's basically a parody of everything. Um, and I, I really like the way that, um, I mean, it starts off, the series starts off with with the with sort of why I can't get invested really like deep down in superhero series, which is that like ultimately every superhero supervillain co- you know, conflict is pretty much the same, and you almost feel as though it could be prearranged, and that's the basic premise of the show, which is you know the this idea that heroes have one organization, villains have another, they have set rules, they have unions, they have um. You know, they have a whole setup figured out in advance, so they don't need to deal with uh, with 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 invention or imagination, really. And that that adds a level of banality that I kind of feel is always secretly there in superhero stories. So to have that actually be folded into the fabric of a universe to me is very appealing. Yeah, definitely. And that when as we you know build up the Guild of Calamitous Intent and uh, was it the Order of Special? What is OSI? 
oh, I forget, and Sphinx and Sphinx and all of that. Yeah, the, Sphinx. I really enjoy as that builds and builds. I mean, one of my absolute favorite episodes uh, of the series is one that I watched most recently uh, towards the end of my marathon when I went back to catch up with season three. And that is episode 10 of season three when we have the monarch arching, which I love that that's a, a verb I can use now, by the way. That, right. That's officially in my vocabulary. Love it. Uh, arching uh, Jonas Jr. And, mm -hmm. uh, and and we get into like, who, wait, who did the who do the heroes call? It's like, oh, we prefer protagonists. Like the the <laughs> all of that minutia is fabulous. When they get into the the mundanity of of their process and it's like the rules that's just understood that these things have. Yeah, I I loved all of that, uh, certainly. And as the show gets more inventive with that stuff, with these different organizations and with, you know, how they develop when we get Dean joining Sphinx and uh, sorry, Hank joining Sphinx, not Dean, uh, and all that. The, the, those are what I can really dig into more. I have seen some Johnny Quest. Um, did not. It was a long time ago, and I was not a fan, much in the way that I'm not a fan of Scooby Doo. There's a lot of Scooby Doo parody in here. One specific Scooby Doo episode, but the Ben Edlund one, yes. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, it is. It is not for me. And I enjoyed the elements of parody that we get here from Scooby Doo, or, and no, sorry, from from Johnny Quest specifically, like when Johnny shows up. Um, mm -hmm. But but for me, the most entertaining part is where they do broaden out a bit and and embrace these other um, superhero and you know any sort of arch storytelling where you have these uh, epic heroes versus dastardly villains. You know, there's a lot of fun to be had with that, and and I think going for a more, you know, opening themselves up to these other uh, influences really helps the show in its later seasons. And I think it's, it's better than almost any other show I can think of at taking a parody and spinning it out into a genuine character. One of my favorite examples of which is Professor Impossible, who is, you know, he's very obviously guy from Fantastic Four. Mr. Fantastic. There you go. I don't care enough about Fantastic Four to even know the real character's name. Uh, Reed initially Richards, voiced, come on. Yeah, still don't care. Um, initially voiced by Stephen Colbert, and then Bill Hader, and then Stephen Colbert again in the special that they did, uh, All This in Gargantua 2, um, a little while ago, uh, who, yes, cl very clearly a joke labeled, uh, you know, built around uh, Richard Reed, but he's got a whole arc to himself in, based around the five or six episodes that he's in, where, at, you know, he gets cuckolded and then gradually becomes a villain over time, and now it seems like he's probably going to get shamed into being a good guy again at this point. Well, first of all, uh, a couple things, because... I can't help. I can't help myself. Reed Richards, not Richard Reeds. Uh, also, I find it very entertaining that you de you define him as having been cuckolded, as opposed I'm to going with memory here. Held his 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 wife hostage and didn't let her out of their lair in the Arctic for years and years, while he keeps uh, her brother in a cryo chamber. And also okay. doesn't let uh, their, their their friend, uh, who is mentally challenged, out anywhere. I mean, he's a he's a villain from the moment we see him. He just doesn't okay. know it, and he doesn't. He's not actively evil to people he doesn't know. Right before he joins the Revenge Society, yes. cut me some slack. I haven't seen that that initial season one episode in like. You didn't watch it this week. Oh. Oh no, I didn't. I didn't rewatch any season oh, one. Oh, I'm the crazy one. Oh, okay, yes, that does sound right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, 
Um, but you know, characters like that who only make a few appearances and are and have very clear, uh, you know, precedents still manage to develop, uh, you know, their own identities. And obviously, it helps that it's Stephen Colbert. Yeah, well, and and Bill Hader also does a very good job with the performance and and the way. Um, and it's one of those things, like we said about Adventure Time previously, and we will probably say about Steven Universe in a little bit here. Um, the way that when they build out the world, they can do things like have a focus episode on uh, Dr. and Mrs. Monarch or um, oh, talk about. I mean, I love that character, but when we're talking about female representation, she is literally defined by the men in her life. She's Dr. Girlfriend. <laughs> At least the doctor stays in front, but or Dr. Mrs. the Monarch. Right. We finally learn her first name in one flashback in one episode. I don't even remember what it is. But right. yeah. But I, I, I feel as though like they've built that auto critique into the character. Like it's not, it's, de- I mean, it's yeah. definitely valid, but it's, they also know that. They clearly. do. Yes. But the point being when they can have a zoom in episode just on her or, uh, that, that episode I referenced earlier as being one of my favorites. One of the reasons that I really enjoy it is because we can spend so much time with, uh, with, with, uh, number 21 and 24. And that's henchman number one as well. Uh, who doesn't know how being a henchman works. Um, and really get to right, know yes. those characters, or we have, there's that um, the two parter where we see what Dean and Hank did on their summer vacations, uh, and we follow one of them one week and the the, the other one the, the next week, and that has uh, Dean interning for for Mister Impossible uh, or Professor Impossible, whatever his name is. Um, right. And so and then they then you know, the end of both episodes are the same, and we see what's going on. Uh, so so when they can do that because they've built out this larger world, because there are you know like. We have an episode just with uh, Dr. Orpheus, uh, who is hilarious and one of my favorite characters. Oh, he's so good. And so the, good. The, the fact that he's been sidelined for most of the last little while is really too bad. Yeah. But but the, those, you know, they have a fleshed out world to the point where they can sustain. Like, even if they wanted to, they could do an entire season where each episode was a standalone with a different one of these um, significant supporting characters. And it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, you you sort of just inadvertently elided what might be my single favorite episode of the Venture Brothers, which is Everybody Comes to Hanks, mm-hmm. which is the the episode of what Hank did with his summer, uh, which is of course their noir parody, which has to be, if not the best noir parody ever, very close to it. And just the the, the that that whole gimmick of whenever he puts on the hat, it turns to black and white, but especially their version of noir patter. Mm-hmm. Which, which, I, which I hadn't realized until I watched some of these episodes in quick succession. The patter actually comes back uh, very quickly in a, in a later episode when uh, when one of the characters is talking about like an attractive woman, and then they suddenly start using that um, that phrase like that dame got right to my noodle or whatever it was <laughs> in a, in a deliberate callback that I did not catch the first time around, or probably even the second or third. Anyway, that specific episode, I think, if it may if it's not the best, it's for me. Pound for pound, possibly the funniest. That or uh, or twelve minutes to midnight. There are a number of fantastic episodes. So while I'm saying I had trouble with the, the show, I still am glad to have seen it, and uh, I'm glad that the episode's coming out. Uh, the, you know, in the next season, it has been renewed for another season. It should be back next year. Uh, we'll undoubtedly follow more in the model of the episodes that I really like than the ones I really had trouble with in the early seasons. Um, now, do you have other favorite episodes or favorite characters that you wanted to to talk about a little bit? Uh, I mean, 
I think that uh, I, I don't know if the, I don't really know if I have other individual characters I I, I need to mention. Um, I do love Quizboy, Quiz and he's great. another character who at first you know he's like he's a he's a little person and he has and he has a, a lisp, and you know he's obviously the butt of quite a few jokes, but he also gets one of the most interesting backstories, and uh, and and actually ends up like being central to quite a few plot lines, especially in the later seasons. That whole thing with Doctor Monstroso, it's, it's especially, um, and uh, yeah, just uh, again like really over time, I've just been amazed at their ability to um, to develop this world, and I, I think part of it is that they sort of stopped. Like they, I, I feel like maybe about a season or a season and a half ago, they kind of stopped adding characters, except for maybe the accountants, who weren't really even characters anyway, and sort of started to deal with their I don't know repository of a hundred or so, mm-hmm. where to the point where even seeming one-off joke characters like Ghost Robot, uh, actually managed to reappear and become a little bit more embedded. Uh, who he really did seem like a one-joke thing, but I feel like I I need to mention very quickly since we're half an hour in and i haven't yet uh the show's secret weapon is the the third like basically the third person who does a whole lot of work on the show and that's jg thorwell aka fetus aka he's got a million other names that all have fetus in them scraping fetus off the wheel lots of other ones anyway (laughs) this guy was on a major for a while would you believe it anyway um his music which uh much like the music on hannibal actually or at least before uh before Reitzel got an orchestra in, really is mostly like 95% performed by Thorwell, one instrument at a time. Um, he's long claimed that he can't actually play instruments, uh, that he just like sort of drags them into the studio and makes sounds with them until he likes them. I think he's being modest because the music is com- like compositionally all over the place and just super fun. If you ever listen to it in isolation, you really realize how involved it is. Yeah, it, it is... It's a really fun score. I think it, it, it's fun it, when you have a composer who is composing everything and performing most of it, um, and sticks with the show for as long or you know as many years as the show has gone. Uh, you get to really see them grow, which can be a lot of fun, or, or even just have develop some themes and then go, oh crap, I we're still going. I should do some new things then, I guess. Uh, and to watch them sort of stretch with these different ideas and come up with new stuff can be can be a lot of fun. And there's a lot of uh, different materials that the composer can draw from that this composer can draw from to you know when we talk about the other references and parodies um the sound of the show is a very distinct element to that as well yeah and actually one of the only things that i don't like about the later seasons is you start to get deprived of the full theme song which actually was probably good for you considering you were marathoning it yeah at first i was skipping over the end credits just out of a concern for time and then i realized i was missing the 30 second thing at the end um so then I started sitting through it, and it, it, it's not as stuck in my head as the Steven Universe theme is, which we should probably get to. <laughs> yes, we'll do that um, very but, shortly. Uh, but it is, it is a, it's a fun theme, and I do miss the theme song and the opening. So to the point where when we had um, – I didn't realize that, that it, they hadn't been doing it until we got the one with uh, Dr. – I think it's Dr. Girlfriend at that point, where we get a different opening credit sequence, uh, but in the same yeah. style. I was like, oh, that's right. I've been missing that. So I hope we get the, you know, that, that it's back and that it's there for season six. Uh, anyway, I wish they would get people to help them make the show faster. Anyway, um, so yeah, let's get Steven Universe. Let's do that. Yeah. So the other show that we talked about was, of course, Steven Universe, which the reason we talked about it, uh, the reason I chose it 
is because I'd been hearing so much buzz about it, saw so much uh, cosplay for it at uh, at Comic Con, and uh, I have one of my students who has impeccable taste, um, who had been harassing me to watch Adventure Time when you were Simon, uh, was harassing me to watch Steven Universe, and uh, so the, all these things came together to say, okay, I really need to make myself watch it. How to make myself watch it? Make you watch a thon. And I'll make Simon watch it too. <laughs> so you actually made us both watch it. I made it us both watch it. Uh, and we both watched the whole thing. Also, what, 65 episodes at this point? What uh, What do you think? Um, I would dare say that it's good. Um, no, it's actually, it's great. And, um, I, th- and I, and I, and I wasn't sure if I was going to think it was great at first because it starts off so unassuming. And I think that's one of the genius things about the show is that it, it really, it seems at first as though it's, uh, it's just a silly trifle and it absolutely can you know for the most part continues to be silly throughout its run much to its uh and i i'm saying this as as a positive thing and the way that it it slowly and i I mean relatively slowly we are talking about 10 minute episodes here but the way gradually adds depth thematic and and to its world and to the uh and to the emotional reality of the characters over those first i don't know 20 episodes or so is really something, but it never feels like it. It never feels uh, in any way uh, inorganic or or like or um or like they're trying to spring anything on you. It feels very planned. It feels very gradual. It feels like they knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah, it doesn't feel manipulative, and it should because they're That's the word I was looking for. Absolutely manipulating you. Yeah, um, like you say, the op- I I I really enjoyed this episode or this show from its very first episode from its pilot episode zero um we're in um i guess spoiler alert if you're listening to this point i assume you're okay with a couple basic premise elements here uh well the first episode has uh steven get a an all-powerful cosmic weapon that can only be used for one thing and he accidentally tr- sets it to be only able to be used for comebacks yes <laughs> when someone insults you and you can't think of a good comeback and you think of it later it it you know springs into action um and i loved that and so i was like I, this show and i we're gonna get along and it so it starts on such a low scale and what, and then it just like you say it unfolds in this beautiful way uh, and what what's neat about it is instead of being a show a uh, galactic you know genre show about these aliens who are protecting the earth uh there's been this like galactic civil war we eventually find out and like there's remnants of this civilization and they never talk about it but if you start piecing it together like there's like a crumbling civilization from thousands of years ago and there's only a few people left and what does that mean like all this stuff would normally be the show and there'd be this like adorable slash annoying kid who would be in it who would show up every now and again as like starting in season five instead the show is about that kid and in the periphery every now and again um cousin oliver (laughs) goes into the main you know area of the of what would normally be the show and uh we get some background chatter about battles and the long lost warrior the you know the transformed no longer corporeal great leader of these of this group who is now uh gone and still very actively missed um it's a beautiful beautiful series with wonderful characterization 
Uh, really fun animation, very distinct characters and memorable characters, and awesome music as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's funny, when you were describing the way that um, there is this immense backstory that we're getting piecemeal over the course of these, I guess the last season and a half, which is what's aired. Again, we're talking about 60 plus episodes already. Um, in that sense, it's it has a theoretical similarity to Adventure Time, which also has this huge labyrinthine mythology. Uh, I would say Adventure Time spends more time uh, directly engaging with that mythology, sometimes even doing flashback episodes mm -hmm. and uh, and sort of exploring it more through side characters or sometimes even main characters. Uh, so far, there's there's only really been one flashback episode that I can think of. Um, and even that is not entirely a flashback episode. Um, this this is not a show that dwells in the past as much. Uh, but there are certainly some similarities in terms of the way it handles mythology. Well, and there it's not a show that dwells in the past, but the characters, some of them absolutely do. Yes. Um, and the big one for that is Pearl. And the way that the show... Oh, Pearl. Oh, God, right? So amazing. <laughs> oh, Pearl. I love all these characters. Uh, They're all amazing in their own ways. And the way that they are introduced as just sort of this like lovable trio of crystal gems um, who go off and, you know, fight monsters. And we find out later what those monsters are in a way that is tragic and amazing and adds so much nuance and depth. And one of the things I love is that you know that the, um, the some of the actors, at least, must know all this backstory because as soon as you start finding stuff out, like half a season later, you think back to their line delivery of some things that seemed like it shouldn't be a big deal, but they like really played it up. And you then later on, like, it's just so, so well-crafted. Anyways, um, the, the way that each of those characters is given so much more depth and so much more exploration, um, and, and their, their, the definition of their relationship with each other and what that means and what they bring out in each other and when they're frustrated, it feels very lived in. It feels, again, this feels like the kind of show that somebody that Rebecca Sugar who created it, uh, mm -hmm. would have been writing for 10 years before she started doing the show. Like, that's what it feels like. Yes, it has a very, it, it, it doesn't, you know, even though she, uh, she worked on, on Adventure Time first. Yes. 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 She wrote some of their best episodes. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it feels like there's no way that aspects at least of this concept didn't predate, like well predate that work because it's, it's very detailed. And again, it's so unassuming at first, you know, the, the setting is pretty, uh, is is very unassuming. The characters seem are quite unassuming. Um, everything is very sort of jovial and low stakes and seemingly quite simple. And then it just it just very gradually becomes something very different. And uh, you talked about the characters and especially and you're you're so right about the way when you first meet the crystal gems, um, they just really seem like broad these very broad characterizations based on just a couple of attributes each. This is the fun uh, one. This is the cool one. This is the smart one. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, yeah, the smart, anxious, bookish one. And the, the, the cool, aloof one. And the one that can't keep her cool ever. Um, and which, which holds true more or less still to this day, but there's still, there's obviously a lot of other stuff going on. And uh, where do you where do you want to go from here? Well, what I think we should do, because if it seems like we've been talking around stuff, it's because we have been very intentionally. Because one of the thing that's so things that's so great about this show, because again, this is a show that's undercovered, 
on online. There's I can't think. Of, are there any sites doing weekly reviews that like major A- publications? Club is. AV Club is doing weekly Steven Universe. Yeah. Okay, that's great. So even prouder to be associated with them, uh, but uh, most places it's not getting covered, and so I feel like there's a lot of people who haven't made the time to seek it out yet. So we're telling you right now, it'll take you a weekend. I, by the way, I was saying how I was really hard to marathon Venture Brothers. I watched thirty or forty episodes of Steven Universe over a weekend and loved every moment of it. You can absolutely marathon this show. Uh set aside a weekend, watch a bunch of Steven Universe. You will be so glad that you did it. Uh yeah, it's it's yes. I did I did something similar, not quite as insane, but uh over over a few days watched most of it and it's it is immensely marathonable. Very uh Despite the fact that we've just said that it gets you know more emotional and and more, um, a lot more happens, uh, it never becomes traumatic. Uh, there, I would say that like the, for everything that happens, uh, it never gets as, uh, it doesn't it doesn't get as scary and like, like, at least I don't think it gets quite as like scary and unnerving as the most unnerving aspects of adventure time can get mm-hmm. would you would you agree with me on that the the moment that sticks out to me as the most unnerving when i was first watching it and then later in retrospect even more so uh when pearl is freaking out about the fusion with the other characters i'm <laughs> yes speaking, that because of the performance um and the, the delivery of, of that of that actor uh, of you know of Pearl when she's that was very you could tell something was wrong and so that was very unnerving especially and then when we find out something and then also um, there's some disturbing subtext with yes. with some stuff later on but it's all very this is a show you can watch with your kids absolutely um, so it is definitely does not feel as um, it doesn't get as ex- existential as uh, as Adventure Time, and I would say, yeah, it's on a similar level, or certainly not more than Adventure Time. Yeah, I, let me put it this way: there's no lemon grab no. eating himself. There's no lemon grab eating himself. It's a lot there's more plot no based. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess the spoiler warning is over. We yeah. Just get into so it. so we're gonna. If you haven't seen it yet, stop listening now. Save the podcast. Come back when you've watched Steven Universe. Uh, And bye. Bye. Okay. So where do you want to start? Fusion. Fusion and how amazing it is and how uh, I'm so glad that I went to that queer imagery and animation panel where they started, we're talking about all this stuff and it all went over my head, but it made me even more curious to watch this show. Uh, It's really cool. And I love that there's a an awesome TV show out there that is like just like accept people. Everybody's different. Oh my god, it's so wonderful. Yeah, and uh, I I said this to you a long time ago, but it still holds true. The thing that is uh, coolest to me about the concept of fusion, it's such a great sci-fi concept in general, uh, because it's not a perfect metaphor for anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's sort of like sex. And it's sort of like coupledom, and it's has aspects of uh, of of uh, several other things that we could you know draw parallels to, but it's not quite any of them. Yeah, it's a much more uh, fluid concept, and it allows 
much more identification if you want it and uh and it just allows the when especially when we find out that this like crystal gem gem regime or whatever doesn't value it and is very opposed to fusion as any sort of a certainly for Garnet a permanent situation but definitely it's like a a necessity of battle when it's needed and uh that's it and it's disgusting and ugly um there's so much you can draw from that and there's it's such a fantastic and to have steven introduced to it as this wonderful beautiful thing and not even understand how someone could not see it as as that uh when we meet we find out later what, what the the empire or whatever how the empire fears about about fusion um I said when I f sat down and watched Adventure Time, we talked about it on the podcast, it makes me, it encourages me about the next generation that that show is such a hit. It encourages me as well about the next generation coming up that Steven Universe is such a hit because it's such a beautiful message of understanding. Well, and I don't think, uh, we haven't even met the kids raised on Steven Universe and Adventure Time yet. You know, these, mostly it's, you know, for, I mean, I could be totally wrong here, but I think it's mostly uh older teenagers and up who have really responded to to these shows and are, are the ones creating the, the fan art and and getting super into it uh, i don't know how much it's actually watched by kids right now but i think in the future it's going to be like force-fed to kids by their parents <laughs> uh who who grew up and i may be totally mischaracterizing the the the, the demos here but well, i think those are going to be some great kids well i know that uh, i've got a student who's a senior in high school who loves uh steven universe and i at comic-con there was a five-year-old dressed as rose quartz an adorable rose quartz nice uh who i i asked if she was bubblegum because it was the adventure timeline but it was also uh -huh. the steven universe line and she said yes and her mom said no you aren't <laughs> <laughs> who are you <laughs> i'm bubblegum it's like who, she's she's rose quartz uh it was it was like one of the most adorable interactions of the con for me uh so there at least at comic-con amongst comic-con people there was a lot of uh right. of, of what age range and i know that my my sister her second grade class loves adventure time and they've seen them all already so kids are watching adventure time i don't know the age group that's watching steven universe right but anybody watching it and making it a hit makes me a happy person what do you have a favorite fusion first of all i love the idea of you being at comic-con trying to understand what a rose quartz is without having seen steven universe <laughs> well i i had heard of the character and i had seen like three other people in that costume it's the the dress the white and the pink you know and everything mm -hmm. um and i was like oh okay and then as soon as i watched it i was like oh duh i feel like an idiot <laughs> for not having recognized this iconic costume from the show yeah uh sorry what was your question I don't, do you have I've a favorite forgotten. fusion oh Besides Garnet, um, obviously. Besides Garnet? Ah, damn it. Uh, I mean, I have to say, the second that I saw Stevani, yeah, jaw, floor, that was, I mean, that's the moment, I think, for a lot of people where, where you're just instantly sold on this show forever. Oh, it's wonderful. It's so good. It's Yeah, yeah. It's pretty, it's hard to argue with Stevani. And I love the way, that, again, like you said, it's not a perfect metaphor for anything, but the way that they, they treat it on the show is fantastic. And the way that they then develop Connie and develop Steven uh, have, as having been affected by that, um, that, that experience. And um, hopefully we'll see them again soon. But um, yeah, it's pretty wonderful. Yeah. And I, I think the thing, one of the things that most complicates what fusion is and can be is the fact that more than two people confuse. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, <laughs> I mean, this, 
one of the, the thing that I maybe most admire about Steven Universe is that uh, if you really start to parse it, you can imagine people writing thesis papers about it oh, until the end of time, but it never feels like like that. Like it, it's a delivery device for for all those ideas, but it never feels like it was designed to be a delivery device for those ideas. It feels like it's a delivery device for fun and characters and an interesting universe and uh, and a potentially grandiose mythology, and the rest is just icing. Yeah, definitely, and um, it doesn't feel like a spoonful of sugar to cram a message down your throat the way that i know many people love this book series but for me after a while the uh the narnia series yeah get challenging i had to you know as soon as someone mentioned just in passing oh well obviously that's that's you know he wrote it to be uh you know uh, c.s lewis wrote the, the narnia series to be an allegory for the bible i was like ah crap now it's ruined it's not very i did i not notice this this is clearly preaching at me. That was my relationship with it. I know a lot of people love that series, not denigrating that. But this show does not feel like that at all. It does not feel so married to a concept that it's not that it's sacrificing character or sacrificing story for that concept. No, it never feels like worthy. If if uh, if that's the word I can use, it never it never feels like homework. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Um, I like the variety in in the fusions and the way that some of them don't go the way you expect. Um, I like when we get Garnet and Pearl fused. I was expecting that to be uh, a very cool character. She's not cool. No. <laughs> not at all. That's neat. Uh, Garnet and Amethyst being so wild and unstable uh, is very, very powerful, I would say. And, um, and then just there's because you know there's so much more that they can do and they have waiting for them with those characters uh when we get lapis lazuli lazuli um and and see that different form of fusion that the the where there's more um where there's that betrayal and there's they're not mm -hmm. in course that i thought is really powerful storytelling and uh the way that that is depicted um yeah, there's that's some that's some Cthulhu shit right there. Yeah. Uh, now, do you have a? I mean, let's putting aside the fact that Garnet is a fusion for a moment. Uh, do you have a? Do you do you have a standard character non-fusion who you identify most with? Are we just gonna both say Pearl now? Uh, no, I don't really identify with any of them. I mean, I definitely can be a warrior, so there's that. Yeah, I'm nowhere near cool enough to be Garnet, so. Uh, I don't think I'm crazy enough to be to be amethyst. I really, I this is one of those things where I'm very much with Steven. Uh, I I identify a lot with Pearl. Uh, it's just the anyway, it's mm, not just the anxiety, but just the way she she seems to feel a lot and doesn't necessarily say a lot about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think is is very powerful and and the vocal the vocal performance is just amazing. Uh, as a, by the way, as long as I'm talking about the the voice work. I need to mention the fact that I didn't realize that 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 Garnet was Estelle until mm, like quite a while she into watching the show. She started singing and it was amazing. Until, probably until she started singing, and obviously her her song in the season one finale is fucking incredible. Yeah, that's um, gonna be on on the end of year lists. I will ensure that is on at least one year of end end of year list. Yeah, uh, if you don't know who Estelle is. Um, I mean, most people know her because I feel like 2005, 2006 or so, she had a big hit with Kanye called American Boy. Perfectly fine song. However, 
uh, if you're interested in what she, if if you are interested in like, I would like artsy askew R and B. Uh, you should really listen to her to her album uh, from this year, True Romance. Super interesting record. Uh, if you're into like Jasmine Sullivan or Beyonce or anyone who's doing interesting stuff with R and B right now, you should hear what she's up to. She's such a cool character, and she's perfectly cast, obviously, as Garnet. She's just the best. Yeah, she's she's fantastic, and I mean Amethyst is pretty great too. When we started getting um, information about her uh, background, where she's like was hatched sort of out out of the earth as part of this plan to destroy the earth and use it, turn it into a like a um, a colony, uh, a breeding ground for uh, for gems to continue this battle and everything. Like it's super dark stuff. And she's like the one thing that positive thing that came out of all of that. It, it really gives you so much more. Again, they just keep they keep recontextualizing and adding nuance to these characters over the course of its of its first you know season and a half that it's had, and in a way that's really fantastic. And uh, while we've talked much more about Garnet and about Pearl than Amethyst, uh, Amethyst is hugely centric in one of my absolute favorite episodes of the show. Um, which is, of course, Tiger Millionaire, which is <laughs> right, amazing. Yes. Right, which is one of the earlier sort of more silly episodes, uh, but I think it's like, which the show still does silly episodes that totally aren't rooted in anything uh, deep at all. And those are still great, which I think we should probably reinforce. Definitely. Uh, and now, of course, I, I was in line next to a Tiger Millionaire at Comic-Con. It was a fantastic costume. They did a really good job. Ooh, and then I was, was... like, okay. <laughs> I was like, cool. Picture, very cool. Awesome. Tweeted it out. Uh, as soon as I saw that episode, I was like, oh, that's amazing. He had the briefcase and everything. He had like, wow. the, the thing on his face, and he had the briefcase, and he had the hair slicked back. He'd done good. Um, by, by the way, has Steven Universe given you any any new cosplay ideas for next year? No, but as soon as you said that, I felt like an idiot for not having already assumed I was going to be someone for Halloween from there. I was going to do Agent Carter, and uh, what was I thinking? Of course I need to do Steven Universe. Um, I don't... It's tough, though, because I don't want to have to do a bunch of body paint. Or, like, additions to your body, like, stuff yeah. you have to stick on there. Yeah, yeah, that would be tough. That would be hard. So I'll have to ponder that. that. But, um, but, yeah, I feel like you kind of have to because the show's so amazing. Um, do you have any favorite episodes that you want to mention? Uh, I mean, all, all the obvious sort of fusion and mythology episodes, I think, are, are all there. Um, I think since, I mean, the show is, it's only aired a season and a half. And I think what I'm going to be curious to see is how it evolves from here on out uh, i think there's there's a lot of room to expand beach city itself in terms of getting more into the lives of the people who live there and how they feel about what's going on uh, we get a little bit of that with the whole like the whole keep beach city weird uh campaign and a few other characters but i think there's still uh room to expand there yeah it was so fun to hear kate mccucci as one of the the workers at the donut big donut or whatever it is um yes there's a few voice actors that pop up every now and again. Like Brian Poussain, uh pops up pretty regularly. There's a few other people like that. Uh, and that's always that always kind of takes me out a little bit because I don't recognize the leads. I don't like identify them with the outside of the show person you know, personality. Um, and I think I've heard enough voice work from Kate Micucci that it doesn't. I don't immediately go to seeing her face <laughs> in my head mm -hmm. the way I do with Poussain. Um But uh, no, it's a fun 
it's a fun again world and, and like a character like Connie the way that they've developed her so much in just a season and a half is fantastic the the training episode with because that also has Pearl's song which is one that just like I'm choking up thinking about it it, it just tears your heart out mm-hmm. um it is is just again fantastic uh, and, and watching Connie you know express interest in this stuff and and try to and want to be uh able and prepared and you know because all this stuff goes down be like i think i could do this and at least that way i can help if something happens not like throw me in the front lines but you know that kind of a thing uh so that's another of my favorite episodes um and and again even just in the initial opening credits she's holding a book and has a hat and has a flowy skirt that like swishes as the car drives by and then in the the new credits I still like the opening theme song, the original theme song better, like the mix of it. But mm-hmm. in the new credits, she's got a big ass sword and she turns around and she runs towards to meet up with them at the beach. Uh, and I like that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great little change. And um, I'll be very curious. To, I mean, I'm mostly interested in how because it feels like certain characters have evolved so much already. Connie's being a great example. And I'm just excited to see. Uh, what 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 the show can do without losing its uh, it's it, it still has a pretty go for broke sensibility, um, but it does have that undercurrent of melancholy that pops up every once in a while. And I'll be curious to see how its tone evolves in the same way that the tone of Adventure Time has evolved, uh, although not all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm I'm very very curious to see what what that shift looks like over time for Steven universe. Like what's going to happen with the rest of the episodes airing this year. I think we're, we're probably going to get another 20 or so, which yeah, starts <laughs> again in September, I believe. Yes. Uh, they haven't set a date. I want them to uh, set a date. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're so lucky in the sense that like adventure time almost never takes a, a break of more than a few months. And it seems like Steven universe operates on a similar schedule. So ridiculously blessed to get so much of both shows. Mm-hmm. For those unaware, when they have a week of episodes, like every now and again, they'll do that on Adventure Time. For Steven Universe, when that happens, it's called the Steven Bomb. Uh, I, I've heard rumors that we're going to get a Steven Bomb to start out the next chunk of episodes. I don't know if that's the case, but if so, I'm looking forward to it, certainly. Um, and, and, you know, with that comparison with Adventure Time, one of the things that we've already said is this is a much more narratively focused show, which means yeah. for me, I can see Adventure Time going for pretty much ever. This is this feels like a show that's going to need that has a story and it has a through line and is going to need an ending at a certain point. Um, It seems like there's a distinct narrative they want to tell about this struggle between these different factions and getting to know the mother. And like that could be for, you know, hundreds of more episodes, but it feels something that it has a certain propulsion forward to it in the way that uh, Adventure Time doesn't. There's Adventure Time is getting into wacky adventures. Uh, Steven Universe is. Uh oh, they know we're here now, um, which brings with it, you know, uh, at some point a giant galactic battle. Yeah, I, I, I would like though if the if the if the Adventure Time and or Steven Universe people would like to just camp over at the Venture Brothers Studio for like I don't know a couple of days, and just help them crank out that next season. Yeah, uh, I think everyone would really appreciate it because they need some help over there. And it could be like, and here's how you could include some women in your show. Well, well, yeah. That would be nice. 
if if they like if they want to i'm just saying you know aside from <laughs> dr girlfriend love dr girlfriend don't get me wrong enjoy triana quite a lot but then you compare it with steven universe and it's like damn it's a sausage fest over there at uh, venture brothers anyways uh any final thoughts on steven universe uh no, it, just to say that I'm I'm even more excited about the show's future than I am for what we've already seen. Yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite discoveries of the Televerse so far is Steven Universe. Adventure Time and Steven Universe are, as far as shows that I've started watching since the show, the Televerse began, it's like those and Hannibal and like one or two others, you know, those are the ones that most come to mind for me. And yeah, the, the, the pure unalloyed joys. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, this has been a, a fabulous way, I think, to send you off, Simon. It's been a real tr uh, treat and pleasure to spend the past most of the past four years talking TV with you, Simon. Uh, any final thoughts for our listeners? Um, and where can our listeners find you online when they <laughs> will be able to? Uh, I guess you could email me. Um... There'll be an email on the post, I guess. Uh, I'm 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 getting off of the Twitter uh, for a variety of reasons, but um, I would just say thank you so much to everyone who has ever listened and wrote in and commented and uh, supported us. Every guest we ever had uh, that I got a chance to talk to that I would have never gotten a chance to talk to were it not for uh, for Kate and the Televerse, and uh, I wish luck and patience to my replacements uh <laughs> guest and permanent uh, flavors and uh and thank you kate for being the most dogged relentless stubborn insane podcaster perhaps in the history of the medium and i'm uh i've, I've heard some hyperbole thrown around over the last little while but i i guarantee for my considerable uh interaction with with the forum over the last eight years i i am telling you that i mean every one of those words well thank you very much i'll take them all uh as as i assume all compliments of the highest variety so i will oh absolutely thank you so much uh and listeners you can email the televerse at gmail.com uh, say for Simon and I'll forward it on to him. If that works, that that's probably the easiest way. Again, thank you, Simon, for four wonderful years and for making me watch Venture Brothers again. Yay! <laughs> thank you again, Simon, and listeners. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Televerse. Thank you for listening. <laughs>